Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Dandelion Energy, committed to helping reduce the use of fossil fuels by providing geothermal home heating and cooling solutions to homeowners across the Northeast. More information at dandelionenergy.com. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, Donald Trump once said, you see the mob takes the fifth. If you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? Well, that's a question Donald Trump himself will have to answer after taking the Fifth during a deposition with the New York Attorney General today. We'll get your reaction. The FDA is changing how it administers monkeypox vaccine to stretch its limited supply. And you vitamin D enthusiasts, well, guess it's not all it's cracked up to be. Our medical ethicist Art Kaplan joins us to discuss. Juliet Kayyem gives her take on the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago and a scary reaction to it. And the targeting of four Muslims by a fellow Moscower. A suspect is in custody. Turns out he may have been upset about a Sunni-Shiite-Muslim marriage. That's all ahead on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Good morning, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. By the way, we're at the Boston Public Library on Friday. Elizabeth Warren will join us for an hour to take your questions and have conversations with you. So over the years, Donald Trump, and this is mostly during the 2016 election campaign, but over the years, he said it was disgraceful that people would take the Fifth Amendment to avoid prosecution. Have you seen what's going on in front of Congress? Fifth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Fifth Amendment. Horrible. Horrible. The mob takes the Fifth. If you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? When you have your staff taking the Fifth Amendment, taking the Fifth so they're not prosecuted, I think it's disgraceful. That's courtesy of CNN. So let me repeat what the former president just said. The mob takes the Fifth. If you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? And now that's a question the former president has to answer himself, as you heard on the national news on NPR a couple of minutes ago. Uh, Donald Trump took the Fifth Amendment uh, at a deposition this morning before the New York Attorney General. And quite simply, we would like your reaction. 877-301-8970 is our number to call or to text. Let me repeat this. The mob takes the Fifth Amendment. Some guy named Donald Trump once said, if you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? And his explanation when he came out of this deposition this morning, essentially the same old, I'm paraphrasing. You know, it's a Democratic witch hunt, etc. I'm not going to give in to that kind of thing. But interestingly, he never thought it was appropriate in the past, but he obviously feels it's appropriate no, now. No, I think the difference now is clearly it's Donald Trump who's taking the Fifth Amendment, <laughs> not mobsters or uh, Billy Bulger when he testified about his brother, uh, Whitey Bulger, and uh, Mitt Romney. In front of Congress, he, that's he right. He couldn't be the head of the UMass system anymore. Or lots of other, you know, one of my favorite f- uh, Fifth Amendment takers, remember Martin Shirelli, our staff with us together oh, for sure. us? He was the guy that raised the uh, price of those uh, EpiPens by like 5,000%. Mm-hmm. Know, he took the Fifth Amendment um, when he was asked um, by the House of Representative Committee why he had done that outrageous things. A lot of very squirrely people have taken the fifth, and now uh, the president has taken the fifth, or the foreign president has taken the fifth as well. But, you know, you, we were adding By the up- way, excuse me. I hope people, you know, we all watch crime shows. Right. So uh, we all just recite those words, I think, without even thinking, take the fifth. Take the fifth 
against possible self-incrimination. Right. Against self-incrimination of former president of the United States. You know, Marjorie said yesterday, as she says almost every day, we're talking about Trump's odd behavior. I'm being kind with the word odd. Remember, he's the guy who said I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, wouldn't lose a vote. Are there people who are staunch Trump supporters who are untroubled by the fact that the former president took the Fifth Amendment in a deposition before the New York Attorney General? Well, or do they buy this BS that it's the only way he can respond to the Democratic mob? I think he did not ingratiate himself with the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, when he called her a racist. She's a black woman. He mm-hmm. called her a racist. That probably wasn't a good idea. But taking the Fifth, as is, is, is we uh, know, does not uh, – you can, supposedly cannot be held against you in a criminal case, but it can be held against you in the civil case. Mm-hmm. And this is a, a civil case. And the theory is that he was in trouble in a criminal way with the, with the Manhattan DA, who seems to have a lost enthusiasm for the case, but there was a case building there about what he was allegedly doing was saying that the properties he owned were worth uh, inflated money when he was trying to get rid of them or show how rich he was, and then they were worth deflated money when he was trying to uh, pay his ta- when he was paying taxes on them. Uh, Michael Cohen was the first person, his former aide, that told us about that scheme. We should add, by the way, with the dread of local angle, the federal appeals court says it is okay for Richard Neal, our congressman yeah. um, uh, up there in Springfield, who represents, of course, <clears throat> what committee is he on? Chair of the Ways and Means Committee. Yeah, Excuse me, the powerful, powerful Ways exactly. and Means Committee. I said that uh, they can get uh, uh, Trump's taxes in the powerful Ways and Means Committee, although it may be a while because uh, Trump will probably appeal it to the Supreme Court. But, you know, I just want to – we know the investigations going on now with the January 6th, you know, dereliction of duty, inciting a mob, all that stuff. Sedition, <clears throat> et cetera. Right. Uh, tra- being a traitor to the United States of America with the Georgia election results where there's another um, African-American district attorney, Fannie T. Willis, who's going after him there. That's a criminal case. Uh, we have the – the Mar-a-Lago uh, missing boxes investigation the mm-hmm. FBI raided his house for, and the business practices investigation all over the place. I forgot about this one. What's that? The Westchester, New York golf club investigation. I don't even know about that one. What's that? But, you know, th- this is on top of so many years of grifting. I mean, way back when he ran for president, we know that he had to pay a $25 million fine for running a fraudulent school, the Trump University mm-hmm. there. We know that he, he f- was found guilty of racist... Uh, practices in apartments back with his father. Guilty, but he came out and he said he won that whole thing. His children can't run charities for years. He can't either. I think he can't either, but I know his children can't for years in New York State because they were running a fraudulent tragedy. It's just like one grift. Charity, too. A fraudulent tragedy is what probably charity, the people yeah. who spent money there consider it's one it. grift after another, and it is amazing. But I know, you know, I, I have to say, I don't. I think that much of that list, except the potential sedition and in the insurrection thing, this is huge. It's you know, huge. let me tell you something. All you have to be, you don't need to understand anything. Everybody watches television. Everybody watches crime shows. Right. And everybody sits on their couch and nods without thinking. As soon as one of the people on the show takes the Fifth Amendment, what do you do when you turn to your spouse or your partner or your kid? What do you say? Guilty. Guilty. Exactly. Exactly as Trump himself once said. Can this guy escape this one, Houdini, like two? The number's 877-301-8970. Sophia in Cambridge checks and says, been waiting to say this for the last six years. Then capital letters, lock him up. Someone else says, referring to the documents issue that obviously broke yesterday, do you think he hid documents in Ivana's casket, which, of course, <laughs> is buried on the golf course for tax reasons? 877-301-8970. You know something? 301- that- <laughs> 
It's 89, a fascinating theory. 70. I mean, yeah, I, I, I know it is... It is beyond naive. It's naive on steroids to say this one is too much. But everyone, you recited, I think, to John King yesterday, whether it's Kieser Khan who who lost his son, he and his wife's son, obviously, and then was trashed by Trump, the John McCain thing, Even after on, a and gold on, star and on and on. It is, it, this is unbelievable, especially when he himself is trashing people throughout his career who took the Fifth Amendment. 877-301-897. Sure I have. This is the Josh You might want to explain it. Well, it, it's a, he's doing a Josh Hawley imitation of Ray's fist as he comes out of uh, of the uh, attorney, attorney General's office in New York. Because he's really a tough guy. I'll tell you the fact that he... he took the Fifth over and over and over again. Now listen to this. This is this is someone who's, who's questioning maybe it's okay to take the Fifth. This is Martin... Excuse me, Randolph says, I'm no fan of Trump, but I have to wonder why anyone would ever not plead the fifth when they could do so. It's not wise to give prosecutors any material for a fishing expedition, even if you are entirely innocent. Of course, I'd like to see Trump prosecuted, so I hope prosecutors can get info they need. This is much like the principle you should never volunteer any information to a policeman, even if you're entirely innocent. So, Attorney Browdy, why don't you answer Marnin in Randolph? Oh, I, I'm going to answer Marnin in the most legal way I can. Are you kidding? I mean, are you kidding? This guy was the president of the damn United States. He's coming before the Attorney General of New York, and as he said, like a mobster taking the Fifth Amendment. I would argue all of us have an obligation to testify whenever asked, truthfully and honestly, of course, under the Constitution. You're entitled to take the Fifth Amendment. No one is questioning his right to do it. But the note, Marmon, with all due respect, and Randolph saying this is why wouldn't anybody do this? You know why? Because not everybody is a criminal. And that's why not everybody would do it. Thank you for your text, but, but you I could not disagree more. You know what? I mentioned Mitt Romney at the beginning. Mitt Romney is a Republican. We all know that. He ran for president. Billy Bulger was an the most powerful politician in Massachusetts for years, and he was the brother of Whitey Bulger. And the Democrats really didn't have the you-know-whats to go up against Billy Bulger. A couple of people tried. They were squashed like bugs. But Mitt Romney, one of the most one of the proudest moments, I think, of his career here is when, after Billy Bulger took the fifth, he said, you cannot take the fifth and be running the University of Correct. Massachusetts system. Great. You cannot take the fifth and do that. And Billy Bulger was out. And and um, I don't know what's happened to Mitt Romney in his later years. I mean, he did vote to impeach the president. But um, that was pretty courageous. I, it was a very way. courageous and thing. Took and took a lead, too. And, you know, Billy Bulger and Whitey Bulger, their tentacles are long in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, as we all know. It was a very courageous thing. So that's how you're supposed to think about people that take the fifth. Now, let me just say, I want to try to be fair to the former president. I was, we played all that sound where he said it was horrible. But in all fairness, a pretty prominent person who we all respect took the fifth in a divorce proceeding not too long ago. That, of course, was... Donald Trump, when he was uh, having an affair with Marla Maples, which is fine. It's not our business. It's her. You know, it's theirs. And Ivana, uh, who's now buried in the golf course for tax reasons, uh, uh, was... Uh, well, it could be for multiple tax reasons, Or hiding Jim. in the other, whatever The tax records uh, might whatever, be right whatever. next okay. to Ivana's uh, deceased In any body. case, he's in this divorce with Ivana. She sues mm-hmm. him over the... And uh, uh, there were five depositions this summer, we were told, according to the Huffington Post. He was asked approximately 100 questions related to Marilyn infidelity. And he pled the fifth 97 times. So obviously he has some experience pleading the uh, fifth. 
8970. Uh, you know what I can't wait? I, I, I almost can't stand. The next speech he gives, they're almost all in the South now. He'll be in Alabama next Saturday. or I'm making that up. I don't know where he is next. Still, giving a speech, he's going to say, okay, what do you think out there? I stood up to those corrupt witch on prosecutors in New York and took the fifth because I'm not playing their game. Standing ovation from 5,000 people? I'd say yes. Would you not say so? Well, yes. I, I don't know. Sometimes I think that, that it's just going to be too much of an overload. It's too, too much baggage. But this may be particularly happy because if there is too much baggage surrounding Donald Trump, uh, then people will go to Ron DeSantis, who is a scarier much scarier version of a politician. Ron DeSantis, as far as I know, is not attempting <clears throat> to overthrow the United States government, uh, the duly elected United States government. So you may not like Ron DeSantis's politics, but he's not engaged in insurrectionist activities. No, he hasn't. He hasn't had to pay a twenty-five million dollar fine for running a fraudulent university. He's not. Stephanie from Woburn, thank you for calling. Hi, Stephanie. Hi. I just wanted to say um, I am an attorney, and I, I wanted to read. You know, just um, voice my um, my support for the Fifth Amendment in general, and yeah. just, um, say that we, we should be careful about how we talk about it. But I also wanted to say that of course he's not going to lose a vote over this. I'm sure we're all shocked to find out that Donald Trump is a hypocrite, and um, of course the Fifth Amendment is different when you're a former president of the United States. Um, but you're right; he's gonna he's gonna go to wherever, nowhereville, Alabama next Saturday and get a standing ovation. And um, I I not going to be surprised at all. By the way, I don't disagree with anything you said. Obviously, the Fifth, important is, is, Fifth Amendment is an important constitutional protection. It, <clears> it <throat> is what you went on to say. It's who's taking it under what circumstances and the grotesque hypocrisy of it all. Stephanie, thank you very much for the you know, uh, call. Having watched your show last night, you oh, had the you. two Republicans that are running for uh, governor in Massachusetts. Well, not really. I played old interviews because yes. Jeff Deal wouldn't agree to do a debate. Yes, before and we, the, what did uh, they say about um, uh, supporting Donald Trump? Well, it depends. Uh, in July of last year, Jeff Deal told me uh, the election was not stolen, but in October he said there were irregularities in a bunch of states and it was rigged. So he, I don't know what his current position is. I know he changed his position. Uh, uh, but Chris, they, it sounded it, neither neither of them denounced Trump. Well, uh, it, it, the uh, Christodi said that he, quote, typically votes, votes for Republicans. When I said, should he run again in 2024, Donald Trump, would you vote for him? He voted for him in uh, in 2020. He actually voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. In any case, by the way, uh, I, in case you missed what Donald Trump had to say, here's a, a truncated version. And I have to say, I, I think I'm with him on this in most cases. Here it is. <laughs> the mob takes the fifth. If you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? Now, Stephanie, the lawyer just called. I, I'm with you on that. But I, it, the mob does take the Fifth quite a bit. I think you'd agree. <laughs> Audrey in Providence, you're next on Boston Public Radio with Marjorie Egan and Jim Browdy. Welcome. Hi. How Hi. are you? Excellent. Hey, thank you for wrecking my day and talking about the worst person in the world. But Sorry. Anybody think that? And, okay, I cannot stand that man. Yeah. He is the most evil, worst person, but... Did anybody expect him to answer the questions and not take the fifth? That's that's why I don't even know why we talk about it. It's all the same, right? Well, I hadn't thought about it, but I uh, maybe naively would have said that, yeah, I would have assumed that he would have answered the questions. But you're right. It's probably naive on my part. So you're probably right. Yeah, you're right. You're, you're, you're right. It does bear mention, though. It is, it is a fairly odd thing. Would you not agree, Audrey? 
Um, yeah, yeah, to piss off the people that it really bothers. But yeah, yeah of course it's an odd thing. Yeah. He, he's gotten away with everything in his life. I can't even believe it. Yeah. So. Well, uh, I'm sorry to ruin your day, but it is what it is with the news. We'll get off it as soon as we can. Audrey, thank you very much for the call. 877-301-8970. No self-respecting lawyer would let Trump do anything but take the fifth. He incriminates himself every time he opens his mouth, says Kathy and Peabody. But I think that his lawyer was concerned uh, from what I've read this morning that he would not be able to get a jury um, uh, effectively if Trump repeatedly took the fifth. So I'm not sure that that's what this, his particular lawyer thought. By the way, where is the jurisdiction? We often talk about changes of venue requests from lawyer. What is the jurisdiction in the United States where Donald Trump could get a fair trial? I don't want to upset Audrey that I'm on Donald Trump's side on an issue. That'd be a pretty tough one, would it not? Um, because Who do you know, know that could judge Donald Trump on any criminal charge fairly without any preconceived notions from whatever direction they're coming. Do you know anybody that doesn't have an incredibly intense reaction one way or another to Donald Trump? That's a very good point. That's a very good point. You would have to be living under 150 rocks, I suppose, not to know everything that was going on. Well, theoretically, no, but theoretically, you're not, when you were asked that question during a voir dire and a jury, they're not saying, do you know anything about the defendant? Because you can't. I was going to say, Jim, was informed in opinion. Right. Is, is what but I'm saying. But who hasn't informed an opinion? Do you know anybody who hasn't That's informed an exactly opinion? That's exactly saying. So no trial. Uh, let him go free. Andre, you're in Rhode Island. You're next on Boston Public Radio. Welcome. Hi. Hey, how you doing? Excellent. What's up? All right. Hey, listen. I haven't talked to you guys in a while. I hope you're doing well. Well, wait a uh, second. You haven't? I just oh, recognized Andre your voice. Where the hell yeah. have you been? Where have you been? <laughs> hey, I'm... <laughs> I've been I've been working uh, the night shift, so I'm back today, so now I can listen to you guys. Well, I'm glad yeah. you're back. What's up, Andre? It's good <laughs> to hear your voice. Uh, likewise. So I, this is my thing. In answer to your question, does he have that many staunch uh, supporters? Uh, I'm going to say yeah, because every time all I've been hearing is how everything that's going on with him is a, is a witch hunt yep. by the Democrats. However, all these bombs that are getting dropped about him. I'm from Republicans that used to be in this circle. Well, that's what the brilliance of the January 6th committee, as we've said a million times, what you said, Andre, is the fact that they've called witnesses, almost all of whom worked for him or were loyal to him, was brilliant, don't you think? Yeah. Hey, listen, and I'm going to tell you something. As far as taking the fifth, I wish the guy would have taken the fifth every time he stepped to the podium when he was the president. Um, (laughs) And... and, uh, (laughs) and, And one last point I want to make. Please. So, you know, once you become the president, you know, you get the Secret Service protection for the rest of your life. You do. So if he goes to if he goes to the joint, do they got to go in there with him? Excellent question, Andre. We'll get to the bottom. We're glad you're back. Call us again soon, Andre yeah, from Rhino. We really you. appreciate it. Thank you very much. By the way, before we take a break here, yeah. I want to point out that Washington Post is reporting um, that uh, uh, Trump's lawyer um, indicated that Trump would, would uh, take – the fifth if he were not granted immunity from the separate criminal 
probe in New York, uh, in Manhattan, about his tax evasion. But he also did say, uh, if he goes in and follows my advice, which will be you cannot answer these questions without immunity, because that's what the law provides, that will be on every front page of the newspaper in the world. And how can I possibly pick a jury in that case? Mm-hmm. So the, the bottom line consensus from the lawyers they can, they've uh, talked to so far in these stories is that this is bad, very bad, very, very bad in terms of appearances. You know, by the way, one other thing, while you and I have talked ad nauseum about the uh, Manhattan DA essentially dropping this case, even though he says he hasn't. For but reasons the, I still don't understand. Right, and the proof is the two lawyers who were the lead lawyers on it resigned as a yep. result of this. The New York Times early reporting on him taking the Fifth Amendment this morning suggests that had he testified, maybe this is a variation on what you were just saying in the Washington Post, it could have rejuvenated yes. a dormant uh, uh, exactly. criminal investigation in the Manhattan DA. To make a misstep, yeah, he exactly, could implicate that, exactly. himself further say, yeah. in the New York criminal yeah. case. Yeah, yeah. This one with Letitia James is a civil case. Anyway, we're talking about the former president of the United States taking the fifth. Give us a call or text us at Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And we're talking about uh, Donald Trump taking the Fifth Amendment before uh, at a deposition before the New York Attorney General today. You know, Marjorie, we mentioned yesterday when we were talking about the search of uh, Mar-a-Lago uh-huh. that the head of the FBI was an, obviously an appointee of uh, Chris Ray, Christopher Ray uh, of Trump. I didn't know until I just read Amy on Martha's Vineyard's uh, text. Maybe you did. The judge who signed the warrant is a Trump appointee as well. Do you know that? Is that I, true? I didn't. Can I you didn't guys check that. that and see? Mm-hmm. I, I, I it very well that. may be true. I just didn't know. I was just thinking though for a second. Can you imagine being in this man's shoes? You got the Department of Justice breathing down your neck. You got the FBI raiding your house. You got the Georgia DA, the Westchester DA, the Manhattan DA all breathing down your neck. You got Weisselberg, who ran his company for years. He's going to be in court on Friday on oh, these the fiscal tax guy, evasion. The financial guy, right. The financial guy yeah. going to be in court on Friday yeah. on these fiscal things. I mean, I mean, how do you get up in the morning? <laughs> you know, I, I can't believe we didn't have this discussion before we went on the air. I, I can't believe – last night I got a bill. From uh, uh, what you call it? Uh, uh, Comcast, you were say, two weeks no, late? No, I was going to say Con Ed from my days in New York a mere 35 oh, Boston, years Edison? ago. No, it's not Boston. Whatever, uh, whatever the thing is in no, uh, N-Star. In is it N-Star I now? think so, yeah. And said I was a few days late. Yeah. I was actually anxious. <laughs> I'm saying, exactly. oh, my God, my credit rate. Oh, my God. I can't. And I am late. I yeah. forgot to pay. I said, I exactly. And then all of a sudden, I turned to Trump. This is before the Fifth Amendment. What kind of person is able to go about their business without being like in a fetal curl under your desk at home when you have criminal cases being investigated everywhere you turn? The civils. I mean, it's just it's unbelievable. And this has been going on his almost Whole his life. entire yeah. life. It's well, true. you always talk about Roy Cohn, his uh, mentor that was kind yeah. of a slippery lawyer himself. Yeah, you and, think so? <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> he basically advised President just to, to – when you've lost, declare victory and lie and lie and lie and lie. And eventually the lie, as we've seen so effectively in the United States of America, takes hold and people believe it's the truth. Eric in Michigan, thank you for calling. 
Oh, hey. Hey. Jim and Marguerite. Thanks Hi. For taking, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, my son goes to BC Law, so I was there. Got to see you at the library. Oh, oh great. great. It was great. Thank Good to you. talk to you. What's awesome. up? So, yeah, so a couple things. Uh, Jim, you mentioned, you know, earlier that uh, it depends on under which circumstances you might be testifying. And, you know, and Marguerite was stating, you know, this is really bad, 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 you know, especially for her supporters. And, you know, I think that we should at least consider the fact that he didn't think he was going to win the election in the first place. It was he was just going for he liked the free publicity of it. I think he was actually stunned that he won it. Most most people close to him say that's true, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, probably. And then after he won, and he, he's still acting like he's a private citizen rather than a public figure, you know. And so the reason he's taking the fifth to me makes perfect sense. And I say that because in his view, this is all trumped up fake. I shouldn't use that term. It's, you know, it's all manufactured anyway. So he's not really taking the fifth like you and I might because it's all fake. So he's taking a fake fifth because this is all fake prosecution that someone's just trying to get him. And his, I think his supporters love it because he's sticking his thumb in the eye of the man. Well, I, I'm sure they do. By the way, I love your expression. He's taking the fake fifth. That is beautiful, and it really fits. Yeah, The one place where I think the fundamental place where I think we might disagree, Eric, is I think he knows this is all an act. I think he is a performer extraordinaire. And he is – I mean, look at what kind of politics he had when he was one of the stars of Manhattan when he was a younger man, diametrically opposed to who he became when oh, yeah. he decided to run for the presidency. He's a liberal Democrat. Right. He, he essentially recreated himself to be who he is and obviously did pretty well. at it. Eric, we're really glad to talk to you again. Hope you make it back to the library. By the way, uh, that judge was not a Trump appointee. Let me read from Newsweek. Although Bruce Reinhart was sworn in as U.S. magistrate judge for the Southern District of Florida on March 14th of 2018, while Trump was president, Trump would have no oversight of, uh, over his appointment. As stated in the U.S. court's website, I didn't know this, a U.S. magistrate judge is appointed by a majority vote of active district judges of the court. It's different from a traditional a, a, a traditional district court judge like, for example, Nancy Gertner, who was uh, nominated by uh, Bill Clinton. And Ted from Marshfield makes, makes a point I was trying to make about how nervous I'd be if I was in his shoes. And Ted says, if I'd done one-tenth the tonnage of crimes and illegal activities, this walking totally. because of garbage of a human being Donald Trump has done, I'd be on death row. Money buys justice. That's a good point. We're getting some emails from conservatives complaining that we're not talking about Hunter Biden. I don't think Hunter Biden's problems rise to the level of the former presidents, but I do think the Department of Justice is close to indicting. Well, that's what the Biden rumors are. And by and the way, everything. that's what about is, and I read some of those texts. And, and by the way, that may be legit. And trust me, you have our word, and I know I speak for Marjorie, if uh, there are facts that become public even prior to a possible indictment about uh, Biden's Hunter Biden's behavior, and if there's any Joe Biden involvement, as some of your texters suggest, or deceit on his part, we'll talk about that. But this is not about whataboutism, which I know is a Fox News. Well, the problem with the Hunter Biden influence thing that, that conservatives love to talk about is. Do you think it was a coincidence that Ivanka Trump got all these deals in China when her father was the president of the United States? I mean, the influence was was ongoing in his administration. He put those people into his administration, which you're not supposed to be able to do after JFK made his uh, brother the attorney general. So, yeah, Hunter Biden may have done horrible things, and he may be about to face the music from the Department of Justice, but Trump's children did similar things. 
Yeah, it, but, by it, the way, but that's by whataboutism the way, too, Marjorie. Well, I mean, it is whataboutism, but it, it kind of deflates the Hunter Biden thing. By the way, the other great thing about Ivanka and Don Jr. was the scam on the condos in New York State where they were in big trouble with the district attorney there, Cyrus Vance. Yep. And what happened when Cyrus Vance got a $50,000, $50, I think it was $50,000 contribution uh, from Trump's people? Lawyers. Yes, yeah, what the happened? Lawyers. They, they they didn't prosecute him. They didn't prosecute him. Yeah, he so ultimately a- returned the money, by the way, and uh, Cy Vance, who's no longer the DA, but that is that is true. In any case, we will. Uh, by the way, someone who thinks that uh, Trump's power is on the decline is going to join us at noon. That would be Juliet Kayyem. So if you're Trump fixated, like some of us are, uh, you should stick around for that. You can't. You can't help us like moth the flame. Can't help it. Coming up, we're going to talk to our medical ethicist, Art Kaplan. He joins us to talk about vitamin D, which may not be what it's cracked up to be or isn't what it's cracked up to be, monkeypox vaccine, and then a really moving story about the difficulty if you are disabled in a wheelchair of flying in airplanes. Art Kaplan is next, 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And we're at the library on Friday. We hope you'll join us. Elizabeth Warren is joining us in person for an hour to answer your questions. We're joined now, though, by medical ethicist Art Kaplan. Art is Drs. William F. and Virginia Connolly Mitty, professor and founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU School of Medicine in New York City. Hello there, Art Kaplan. Hey, hello. I got to get up there sometime for that library we show. We would then. love that, actually. Oh, I, I think spent, I spent would, too. some of my wasted youth in that library. <laughs> well, you, we get a big crowd for you, Art. No question about it. That lot, we have a I lot of fans. By the way, for those <laughs> yeah. who don't know, Art is a Framingham kid, we should yes. uh, say. So. so, Art Kaplan, you were kind enough last time we spoke with you to give us a heads up on this great conference involving uh, pigs, or at least one involving pig. pigs. <laughs> Apparently, Beautiful coming back setup, to life, Marjorie. and you told no, us about it. No, they're not coming back to well, life. Marjorie. <laughs> well, Art's going to explain, but 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 the deal is, it was like a huge story that broke all huge, over the national yeah. news. Like with it, it was huge. So, tell us about this conference, and tell us about the dead pigs that are not really coming back to life. But but well, it's encouraging. Well, we want them to come back to life if they will register and pay the conference fee. That would be <laughs> absolutely desire. No, uh, so we have friends uh, at NYU that we work with at Yale and uh, in the transplant field. And uh, they work with us on many issues. And they did an experiment, which was startling to say the least. They uh, had a pig that they got uh, from a slaughterhouse that was going to be killed. They anesthetized it completely and then killed it. Um, uh, Basically uh, waited an hour, put in I'm going to describe it as artificial blood. It's much more than that, but that's a pretty good summary of what they did. Their magic solution, they called it Organ X. Lo and behold, after this pig is dead for an hour, they get some twitches in its muscles. They get some signs of electrical activity in some of its organs. It is not alive. It's not running down the street. But nonetheless, if you will, biological activity restored by putting in this 
chemical solution that they have invented. It's startling. I mean, obviously, people, there were a lot of headlines that said, you know, pig resurrected. That is not true. They don't even know if the pig's brain came back, for example. But, well, I'll put it this way, just for an opening comment. It reminds us that death is not an event. It doesn't happen like, you know, 4.02 p.m. pronounced dead like we see on TV. It basically is a process where the body shuts down gradually and peters out. And even an hour later, you can still generate some kind of activity in the body if you have the right chemistry. By the way, the same scientist this morning said that Elvis will be performing in <laughs> Vegas this weekend, which is an amazing. So, but, our, but I read a lot about it after you sort of wet our appetite. And the sense I get, please correct me if I'm wrong, it's not so much that they believe they're heading, headed in the direction of bringing back the dead, but on an issue that you care a lot about and are deeply involved in, the likelihood of, I don't know if this is the right verb, regenerating an organ, for example, of a dead entity so that it could be transplanted, which, yes. that is a, that's a primary focus. Is that, is that yes, a fair absolutely. summary? Okay. So, again, a little macabre here, but if you signed up to be an organ donor, which I hope all of us do, it's still, despite all its problems, it saves lives. Mm-hmm. Um you basically can't be an organ donor un- unless you're in an ICU on machines. So even though a lot of people sign up, most people can't do it. They die in a bed or they die in their apartment. Uh, they die listening to this uh, show <laughs> out of trying to escape boredom or something. But they, you know, they're not in an ICU with all the fancy apparatus. If you had this solution and it worked in people, potentially you could quickly inject it into a a person who has died and salvage the organs and let them then become an organ donor, which would be great. So that would greatly expand the pool of transplantable organs that would get rid of a lot of the shortage that we face every day. One other thing, if you suffered, let's say a bad injury, you jumped, uh, you were drowned and they pulled you out of some lake and your heart has stopped and everything, maybe they could administer this solution on the spot and kind of use it to get your heart going if they did it very, very quickly. It might be a kind of oh, a okay. rescue intervention. I don't know that it's going to wake up anybody after an hour, but maybe <clears throat> at 30 seconds, yeah. I'm sure there's some ethical issues, which as time goes by, we should address with you. We're talking to Art Kaplan, medical ethicist. So, Art, I, I think you were the first person who told me many years ago that I should not be so worried about taking all these vitamins uh, because you were <laughs> skeptical about their efficacy. Now we learn that uh, vitamin D that a lot of people have been taking to ward off different diseases uh, may not be as good as we thought. Uh, the yeah. great story, Kay Lazar, um, for, uh, in the Boston Globe today. I'm disappointed. I saw the Globe story. I I had hopes for vitamin D. Many of us go to the doctor and the doctor says you're low on vitamin D. Yes. One that you get from sunshine and being outdoors. Often people are prescribed who are low on vitamin D to go outside more and sort of get a little bit of exposure to the sun. Not too much so that you get skin cancer, but, you know, get a little blast out there. It just looks like the vitamin D is not processed into the body. You take it and it doesn't work the same way as sunshine exposure, which maybe makes sense because our bodies make vitamin D by some process that I don't understand through sunshine triggering it. Taking a pill isn't the same thing. So the story basically said, not working. 
not doing anything. We have to add this to the long list of things that Jim can't take anymore in the hopes of eternity. <laughs> you think so, he's yeah. joking, brother. I used to get vitamin D shots. You know why I stopped vitamin D shots? You did? Not because my vitamin D something was low. Not because I decided against doing them. I forgot to go back and get whatever quarterly <laughs> or whatever. But I, yeah, I got shots. But one question I wasn't clear on, and, and maybe we don't know, but um, vitamin D for osteoporosis uh, yeah, that was mentioned in the article. Any, didn't seem to do anything for that either. Didn't seem to do anything. I, I'm, listen, I'm not anti-vitamins. I'm not anti-vitamin D. I wish they worked. It would be great to be able to take something and slow osteoporosis or whatever, uh, you know, diseases we hope the vitamins help us with. The only one that's still on my list is vitamin C. That still seems to be important to take because we don't make it. Well, what was also distressing, this wasn't in the story today, but for years, women um, post midlife, I don't know, 35, 40, were supposed to start taking calcium, right, for osteoporosis. Yes. yes. Then we found out just a couple of years ago that some people have linked an overabundance of calcium to dementia. Yeah. So, so again, that's what we're not supposed really... to take calcium anymore. I, well, I, I wouldn't go that far. I think that's when you got to really work with your doctor on. If you have signs of really severe bone degeneration, it's probably worth a tiny risk of dementia to prevent that. So I think that's that's an individual discussion. Where I think the lesson goes is, well, what about the rest of the supplements that are full of our supplement stores? Are they doing anything? Right. They don't want to test them. So, you know, if vitamin D and regular vitamins and vitamins for women over 55, which I see are on the shelves and men yeah. over whatever it is, 111. So if they're not doing much, if anything, then what are the hopes for what we can buy at the nutrition store as a supplement? Okay, let's move on to something that. Well, is getting... I, no, but before we move on, let me just say: until Doctor Oz has spoken on this, I'm reserving <laughs> my uh, uh, position. You want to move to monkeypox? I mean, we have what we have seven or eight thousand uh, cases in the United States, which mm-hmm. to me, and I'm not minimizing because I hear it's incredibly painful in some cases. Absolutely no deaths. I guess that's the good news. It is a public health emergency, we learned recently, has been declared that. And it appears that because they're the, I think it's the FDA is urging a more limited uh, dosage to, so that they have more shots right. available, that once again, we are not prepared for a public health emergency, despite what we just lived through in the last two years. So here's the sequence. Monkeypox appears, doesn't look like it's, too bad, and then all of a sudden it starts to take off, and it's definitely focused in the gay male community. People are nervous. They don't seem to want a message there, afraid of stigma, True. afraid of creating discrimination. I have to say, I don't think saying there's a disease that is uh, moving through the gay community, uh, you don't want to uh, not message the community. Better to prevent the disease and get the messaging careful but you know there are plenty of diseases that different groups have the uh, sickle cell is in some groups cystic fibrosis is in other you know it's not the first time we had a disease that appeared in the group so it's just being careful anyway <clears throat> we didn't respond fast enough we had more vaccine believe it or not some of it outdated rotted on the shelf didn't get it out didn't distribute ridiculous then we wind up short then they say, well, maybe we can use smaller doses and stretch what we've got, which I'm not against, but 
yesterday they approved that under what's called an emergency use authorization. Yeah. Either of you remember that? That we was learned COVID. it from you. Yes, indeed. And so the problem with that is you don't study it; you just give it out. And we got to see whether the lower doses work, whether they really have sustained immunity. What if we give out low doses? People are protected for three weeks and then it goes away and we got to do this all over again. And we don't know where. I think the idea is they're hoping if they stretch the first dose now, they'll get enough here by October, November to do the second shot. And this should be a two shot vaccine. So stretch. Okay. But I wish they were doing it as research, not as emergency use. We ought to. With that, look, we did this with COVID. We all got two shots. And then people, you guys spent hours here asking me, do I need a booster? What is a booster? Yep. Do I need a third shot? Do I need a fourth shot? We never studied it, so we couldn't answer it. Well, I'm proud to be saying I'll be getting my fifth shot in September if uh, <laughs> Joe Biden gets his way. So, so Art Kaplan, um, I want to talk to you, and I want to commend the New York Times for doing this, for following uh, this gentleman, Charles Brown, who yeah. a former Marine who was injured in a diving accident and paralyzed. The ordeal he goes through getting on and off airplanes um, described it as it, it, you know, embarrassing, uncomfortable, and risky. My heart went out to this guy. Tell us about well, him. Look, um, we try somewhat to make public facilities disability friendly. I can tell you, having gone down to New York and as someone who ambles around with a cane because of uh, spinal stenosis, um, the New York subway system is not disability friendly. You can't use it. Half of the elevators are broken. I've been on the MTA. I've seen it hard to get into stations there. I remember not counting the people who fell through the stairs because they didn't maintain things properly. But people should be able to fly with appropriate uh, aid to get on and off planes. We see that, you know, they get wheelchairs for people at the airport. These days at airports, things are a little chaotic, so the wheelchairs may not be coming quickly for those who need them. But even if you have them, they don't know how to get you on the plane safely. They don't have people strong enough to get you down the aisle. This guy said he was dropped a couple of times and injured. Um, we got to do better. The, the, the country has to make airplanes, trains, subways, buses disability friendly. And I know there are kneeling buses. I see them. And I know there are some accommodations out there, but we're not doing enough. And this story is a big reminder that it's a fundamental inequity. You know, it's not only getting on and off the plane. I was, I'm was i really embarrassed. I never thought of this. We all know how confining and claustrophobic the bathrooms are on oh, yeah. the planes. You can't use the bathroom. And, and I wasn't aware that it's only on airplanes that have two aisles that there's a requirement that there be a bathroom big enough to accommodate a wheelchair. Yeah, so another yeah. horribly uh, painful part of this story, and I agree with Marjorie, they did a great public service in the New York Times, is the guy was thirsty but couldn't drink in the yes. airport lounge or whatever you call it, in the, at the or airport for going to the plane. Eat. Because he was right, because he was afraid he'd have to use the bathroom. I mean, it's just, and I, I, so, I, you know, I didn't read the story carefully enough, so one of you can, the Americans with Disabilities Act, I assume, exempts, airlines or something because or at least some public transit because otherwise they couldn't get away with this right i mean it's, yeah it's... i don't i don't know the answer to okay. that but i'm gonna say i bet not and i wish we'd get some lawsuits running 
Uh, you know, one other thing to remember about disability accommodation, and I notice this a lot, even if you're able-bodied, you That's still would like a bigger point. bathroom. Yeah. If you don't, you know, bigger street signs help everybody. It's not, I think uh, everybody benefits when you have disability accommodation. Jim is a big guy. I'm a big guy. Fitting into that bathroom on the airplane requires gyrations that I haven't engaged in since the seventh grade dance. You know, it's like twisting, turning, trying to squeeze into that thing. It's absurd. Well, you know, it's not but, a problem for me because I have such a hard time getting into the seat. The once <laughs> I'm in it, I can't get out anyway. I mean, it you know, is incredible. I just want to add to this too, though. It's not just getting on and off the airplane in the bathroom. She goes through this horrible experience getting pat down by the TSA yeah. uh, mm. where they're inside his thighs and, and ask him to stand up. And he says, I can't stand up. Yes. And the guy's, you know, disputing that and he's trying to pat his butt. And, and then he talks about the difficulty if you don't have a bunch of people to help you with your luggage, mm. right? I'm trying to get the luggage oh, off, off the yes. rack. And, and, and let it- me say, too, I, you know, I've used a wheelchair once in a while to get far in an airport. There are some great people who help you uh, go out of their way, get you out to the street, get you out to your ride or whoever's picking you up. But not everybody does. So you could be left, so to speak, inside the airport. You can't get to the curb where the ride is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a really, really good story. It's called Embarrassing, Uncomfortable, and Risky, What Flying is Like for Passengers Who Use Wheelchairs. That's from the from the New York Times. So let me just say to you, uh, I've always been an admirer of yours, Art, but I have to say, your level of confidence, the smartest man in the world, many people think, is George Church. Uh, and Art Kaplan has decided to go head-to-head with George Church when it comes to de-extincting, a word that Art will explain in a minute, the woolly mammoth. What's the subject matter and what's your position there, Art Kaplan? It is Jurassic Park, bringing <laughs> back extinct animals, dinosaurs in the case of Hollywood. The woolly mammoth, not so long extinct, used to prowl around the plateaus or the steppes of Russia out in Siberia, sort of a cousin or relative to the elephant and so on. They're not around. We see them. I think we got a few museum samples of a tusk or maybe couple of one or two intact ones. Anyway, George thinks it would be a really good idea to bring them back. Although every time I ask him why, it's more just to study them or understand them or for the, I don't know, interest of seeing an extinct animal. My argument, which by the way, is correct. In terms of <laughs> Long pause. Yes. Yes. Is correct. Is one. They're going to be lonely. You're not going to make that many, so they're just going to be a few of them. Two, where are they going to live? On the steppes of Russia? You mean next to the nuclear plant that's out there now or uh, with Putin's army or something? Those environments have all changed. Three, we all know we got new viruses and bacteria attacking us every year. These things aren't going to live five minutes because they're, they were made for a different world of 20,000, 30,000 years ago. Today's, I think, uh, bacteria and viruses will kill them. And what's the point anyway? You know, I mean. Well, I'll tell you what they say. I hope I get this right. I have a little sound from when uh, uh, George Church was with me on TV a couple of years ago. I think he was there when Ben Mesrick, who's a local guy who's written a million uh, Mm -hmm. books that have become movies in a second. uh, Ben Mesrick was there, wrote a book called Wooly. And I think the contention is 
that it's not just an experiment uh, uh, in can we do it, but also has potential impact on climate change in terms of the ability of a ton, you know herds of woolly mammoths and what they can do with the tundra. The, I, I don't really understand. But in any case, here is uh, the other side of this argument. Genetic, Harvard gen, uh, uh, gen, geneticist George Church was with me, I think, in 2017, yeah, talking about how, it's, here's the incorrect side of this argument. Go ahead. Here he is saying that scientists even then five years ago had made strides in bringing back the woolly mammoth. Here's George Church. Already two genes have been brought back. So first of all, it's a miracle we can even read ancient DNA, much less recreate it. But two genes have been brought fully back and tested and shown to be what you would expect of something that was cold resistant. So the answer is likely yes. Parts of it, at least, yeah. Uh, we decided for a variety of reasons not to play the part when I said, well, you know, Art Kaplan, and he went, right, <laughs> Art Kaplan? <laughs> right, so. The idea, we should say, from, because I, it's in the New Yorker piece, is that, that the uh, mammoths would populate the permafrost, avert its melting by turning right, wet right, tundra into right. dry grasslands, which oh, better sequester. By pounding on it because they're huge and heavy, and they'd pound on yeah, it with their paw, yeah, uh, what, sure. not paws. Uh, what are they called? Hooves have, or whatever. Hooves, hooves. We have 10,000 woolly mammoths prowling the steppes of Russia. But who's dreaming here? Come on. This is this is ridiculous. Okay. Um, you know, one one last thing before you go. Uh, hey, by the way, what? I'm not against trying to save the climate, but I think we could do better than really mammoths to go pound on the frozen or not so frozen tundra or whatever it is. Count me as pro woolly mammoth. Uh before you go <laughs> The really disturbing story that Very. we read about how, I mean, again, embarrassing not to think about how heat is a huge uh, problem for so many workers in so many industries in this country. And uh, here's the big shocker that many industries are fighting any efforts by the feds and others to put regulations in place that have some safety controls vis-a-vis hate, uh, heat and hate is probably the right word, heat and the worker, Art Kaplan. Yeah, so you've got, imagine what it's like to be a roofer uh, or spreading asphalt in the current past week. You need a break. you got to get hydrated. You need to have your health uh, looked out for as part of this. And, you know, a lot of the employers are just saying, well, we could do that, but it will cost us money. So we're not going to do that. What is this? Charles Dickens in the 19th century? I mean, please, we need tougher legislation to protect workers. And by the way, heat kills a lot of people. I know it's a lot of people who are elderly without air conditioning or fans and and sort of locked into apartments, but a lot of those jobs are very dangerous. There are a lot of deaths, and I'm sure some of them are due to trying to work in horrible conditions. So I thought, to be honest, that this had been solved. I it's 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 mostly once again Republican legislators that are doing this. One of these heat bills has failed three times in Florida, and they were talking in the story about how uh, in Florida the lawmakers did support heat safety for student athletes. I forgot about that. That's right. But when asked to extend protections to the state's That's outdoor great. workers, many of whom are Latino immigrants from Central and South America, they let the bill die yeah. in committee. Well, you know they're going to really fight hard for those Latino. Immigrants, particularly the ones they're putting on buses and sending north. To Washington, yeah. D.C., exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, Art Kaplan, thank you uh, much for your time. And George Church says hi, by the way. <laughs> Not hey, by the way, some wise guy's going to write me, I know this, and say, well, you've got that magic pig solution. you got a museum specimen of a mammoth. Why don't you just go wake them up? <laughs> well, next, I guess, is the case. 
I, I do want to talk next week, though, about the ethical issues of uh, reviving even a piece of, uh, of an piece animal of that is dead. Yeah, so. Well, it makes it hard to have dinner in some place. <laughs> Art, good to speak to you. Talk to you next week. Be well. Art Kaplan, thank you very much. We've been speaking with medical ethicist Art Kaplan, Drs. William Meth and Virginia Connolly, Mitty Professor and founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU School of Medicine in New York City. Up next, our national security expert, Juliet Kine, will walk us through the implications of the FBI raid at Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate and the targeting of Muslims in Albuquerque. The good news is we think we have a suspect. Uh, She's next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, Juliet Kayyem joins us on a string of killings of Muslims in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Then a recent piece in The New Yorker proclaims the sport of pickleball might just be enough to reunite or fracture America. We'll hear from its author, Sarah Larson, on what the sport is, its soaring popularity, and then open it up to you to hear your pickleball stories, and of course, I'll share mine. <laughs> Excuse me? Foreign private equity has its hooks in New England's fishing industry. We'll hear from Will Sennett of the New Bedford Light on his joint investigation with ProPublica, then Boston World Cannabis reporter Dan Adams on the legislature's approving reforms to Massachusetts marijuana laws and marijuana besting blueberries and dollar sales in, of all places, Maine. All that coming up on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. could make way for some sunshine highs only in the 70s. A chance of showers tonight, lows in the 60s. Right now, 71 in Boston. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors... Eastern Browdy, I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to hour number two of Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Hello again, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. So as we said earlier in the show, only the mob takes the Fifth Amendment. As we know, then that was according to Donald Trump, who, as you heard, took the Fifth Amendment this morning, just the day after we learned about a search warrant being executed at his primary residence in Mar-a-Lago. Joining us to discuss both and a bit more is Juliet Kayyem. Juliet's former assistant secretary for Homeland Security under President Obama and the faculty chair of the Homeland Security program at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Her new book is The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters. Hey there, Juliet. Hello to both of you. You know, I love talking to you, Juliet, because not only did you teach me to pace the rage, you taught me how to live in an age of disasters. I feel like (laughs) every day is another one. So... I want to know it, what may, it, may, it may be the same advice, right? You know, I mean, yeah. So, what do you think about the former president taking the fifth? Oh, not a surprise at all. And if we just, uh, um, I mean, b- both because his son had taken it, so this is just the pro forma, him saying that he's he's not going to uh, uh, respond to uh, this particular investigation. And I think so. I think. In, in many ways, it's not a surprise. But then, of course, when it happens, it is a news story. Uh, this case, uh, 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 you know, as well as the other dozen or so who who can keep track uh, is is on its own time frame. 
in terms of, of, uh, of when it will get to court. This is a state uh, uh, prosecution uh, related to not the January 6th stuff or the stuff as president, but of course, uh, the financial and other dealings of when he's in New York. Not so, a prosecution, a, a, a proceeding. Sorry, a proceeding. proceeding. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. Yeah, it's not a criminal. So uh, so I'm, I'm not surprised just given what his son had done. But this is, of course, uh, you know, Trump has a lot of lawyers. He's got a lot of lawyering, I guess <laughs> one would say. Yeah. It, it, so you did write something, uh, speaking yeah. of major disasters and stuff, that, that w- was pretty encouraging for The Atlantic and, uh, about the... The, the good and bad news about Trump's violent supporters and also yeah. about Trump's possible waning influence. What'd you say? So, um, look, there is like so much speculation about what happened at Mar-a-Lago and what the FBI took and why Trump has not released, you know, what was in the, uh, the, the document he received from the FBI, what they took out of the, of the safe and of the, uh, of where he's been living we have heard sufficient rumors or at least pretty good reporting beyond rumors that it has something to do with his retention of classified information. Uh, and I won't speculate about what it could be. I just raised a question, which is knowing that Trump has already relinquished classified materials that he had given uh, to uh, back to the United States government. He, he was not in lawful possession of them. Why was he retaining these documents? I mean, in other words, or whatever it is, I I find that the most interesting question. Like if you've already given stuff back, you must not view it as as interesting. Maybe it was a mistake. We're not going to prosecute. Just give it back because that's important to the U.S. government. So I am very curious about why these particular documents he's fighting for. Uh, and and I think it's a fair question to ask. I don't know what the answer is, but this is the question I would ask, which is what is it about these documents? Are they about a particular country? Are they about business dealings with a particular country? Those are the questions that I want to answer. I won't speculate. Uh, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of lawyering and a lot of speculating. So that's just my question. Um, Uh, about it. Okay, so but let's get to the other part. What we do know is the action of the FBI uh, going to Mar-a-Lago triggers something like I have never seen before in the world that I unfortunately often live in, which is the cesspool of deplorables um, and violent MAGA. Um, It is uh, it and and most people who document this hadn't seen anything like it. You saw almost uh, 1000, 2000 percent change within a couple hours of even the use of the word civil war. Civil war has become what they're focused on. This is a triggering event. And it's scary. I'm not I'm not denying that the radicalization and the casual uh, mention of violence is uh, is still shocking to me. Right. I mean, in other words, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm used to uh, to violence, obviously, but just this sort of casual invocation of something as disastrous as a civil war. And a lot of it is bravado and a lot of it is, you know, just sort of uh, play acting and the kind of stuff that these guys like to do in the basement of their mother's homes and stuff. But some of it is real, as we certainly know, and January 6th requires us to take it real. But I I took a step back in this piece and something for listeners uh, to know that it's not the strength of the hate. It's the size of the group. I mean, this is just the difference. So that people reacted that way 
uh, is not a surprise because there's going to be an element of MAGA and violent MAGAism, which I think there are d- distinctions between the two that will get triggered no matter what. That's not our concern. We're not going to change them. Ideologies do not end. They either grow or they wither. And we just have to focus on the latter. And what I what I think we tend to forget is that um, all metrics from the ability of these groups to form and grow, uh, to raise money, to avoid criminal prosecution, the ability of Donald Trump, who on the one hand could be the uh, the you know the the presidential nominee, and on the other hand uh, can't fill a room uh, when he goes out there, his isolation uh, and deplatforming, all of those are relevant to uh, to a, a counter-narrative, right? I mean, in other, we have this tendency to think of Trump as Voldemort from a violence perspective, sort of untouchable. And I, I felt a need in the warm, lazy days of August to remind people that the mere presence of this, you know, fake no the, the, or I don't want to say fake but this violence actually has a counter narrative and and as I said last night on CNN I don't know how this ends but I know what winning looks like and I like what I'm seeing I do can we return to the underlying uh Mar-a-Lago thing for a second yeah. Marjorie and I were talking off the air this morning and we never quite got to it on the air in the spirit of James Comey's performances pre-election, okay. I'm not defending them, but his contention was it was important for the public to know. When uh, we hear, even if it's a muted voice, that uh, there's going to be war, when the DOJ says, wait, um, pardon me, when the Republicans in Congress said, wait till we take over, we're going to whatever, why doesn't Merrick Garland or Christopher Ray, head of the FBI, mm-hmm. hold a press conference and tell the American public more than what we know now, which is people like you and every talking head on television yeah. speculating as to what's going on. And you could all be totally wrong, uh, even right. though one has to assume. Why can't they give some limited information to the public without putting their yeah. their investigation at risk? Uh, be, uh, it would be almost impossible to do because any information that they give, uh, is there a grand jury? How far along is the investigation? What what is the exact focus of those materials? Is it another country? Uh, is it a particular person? Is it a family member? Uh, would implicate uh, other pieces of the investigation that they don't want known. It also could implicate people who are innocent. So we have to remember that, right? So so th- those are the two reasons why. And I stand firm on this. I don't think this is. I don't. I mean, I don't think that that it makes any sense. Uh, and in fact. Comey proved why it made no sense for the FBI or the attorney general to own this in any way outside the normal. This is a national security investigation and we're looking for classified information. The president now let's now let's turn the tables. The president is in possession because when these raids or whatever you create, you know, then these investigations happen, he had to be presented or someone in at the at Mar-a-Lago was presented with a list of what materials uh, they were looking for and the reason why those materials may have been found. We there's there's reporting about multiple boxes being found uh, and being confiscated. And I think that that is 
uh, that th- the president could do that. So I don't think it's on uh, the government. I would not. Yeah, but recommend- hey, if I can say the guy's a pathological liar. I mean, as I right. said to Marjorie yesterday, we all keep talking about the safe, the safe. We have no idea if the FBI broke into the safe. We just yeah. know that Donald Trump said the, FBI, the FBI broke well, into just, the safe. I'm going to, you know, this is my government hat and the FBI could care less that you don't know. I mean, in other words, from their perspective, they're not fighting this in Magaland, Truth Social and Fox News. They want to build a case. So whatever everyone's speculating is not going to be relevant to them when they go into court and they can say, we did this lawfully. We did not tip our hand. We did not let Saudi Arabia or Russia or anyone else know that these were the materials we were getting. Um, And here's the story. And we don't even know if this ends up in court. This could just be... The reconfiscation of materials that did not belong to Donald Trump, uh, that for whatever reason he was holding on to. Um, can I just say two things quickly on what you're so the first is um is is my speculation is only questions, because I do think that there's a lot of lawyers getting in front of their skis here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the but the uh, incitement of MAG is not speculation. That's just the documentary. Oh, of course, right. Yeah. And the other thing is. <clears throat> Um, I, I, there's a there's a sense that it was Donald Trump who uh, let people know that 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 uh, the FBI had shown up at Mar-a-Lago. So give credit where credit is due. There's actually a local reporter in Florida who has lots of sources in Mar-a-Lago. And he wrote the cutest tweet. I mean, it's I, I wish I had it up. And he writes something like, you know, all my sources are telling me that there was an FBI raid at Mar-a-Lago. And he's like basically like. I'm not qualified, you know, to follow this. I just want people to know there was actually an FBI raid at Mar-a-Lago today. And then every reporter follows it. And that's when Trump came forward. So kudos to local reporters who not only on this case, but in in some of these abortion stories and other stories are are in the courtrooms or at the places uh, getting these stories. We're talking to Juliet Kimer, National Security Advisor. Just to get back to the um, what, what Trump's waning influence and the smallness of this group of fanatical people that are following him. What scares me is that we have election deniers being nominated in Republican primaries all across the country now. It's possible that the Democrat will beat them in the final election, mm-hmm. and, and, and yeah. I hope that because I don't like election deniers. But mm-hmm. that's coupled with stories about um, uh, several states, including Ohio, a traditional yeah. swing state, which is so gerrymandered uh, and which is the gerrymanders have been ruled illegal, but they're going to go yes. ahead anyway, that the it doesn't matter in some of these states uh, that what people vote in 2022, because the, the it's going to go to Republicans no matter what. So that's that's what scares me that the next yeah. election, because even if people are not are moving away from Trump. Obviously, the Republican it won't Party be reflected. is not. And and the uh, legislatures in a lot of these states are right. not. That's true. I mean, but remember, it's also gerrymandered in some places. I don't it's not a perfect uh, balance uh, in favor of Democrats, too. So it's not. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not it's it's not, um, you know, uh, there it's it's more complicated. So just a couple of things on that. I agree with you. I mean, the system is so built to not favor Democrats, at some stage, something's going to have to give. You just cannot sustain a country. I don't mean a civil war, but you just cannot sustain a country in which 90 percent of its citizens are not represented uh, for whatever reason. You know, or, or there's not elections that represent their sentiment. Right. Um, 
in the legislature. And I don't know what that looks like, but I do know a couple of things. One is, and I don't, I don't mean this flippantly, there are lots of courts and a lot of these are being taken to court and legislatures can ignore them and then they're taken to court again. And, and the Supreme Court has not been consistently in favor of Republican gerrymandering. It, it is, it has been um, also has deferred a lot of these cases. It won't take them. So there'll be a, a legal fight uh, of which the win versus the loss has been whatever percentage it is fundamentally for better representation. The second piece is, uh, is, um, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to bet the house on it, but everything I saw last night um, just shows democratic overperformance everywhere. I mean, it's just, I mean, I don't even think we have a sense of how to measure Roe, the end of Roe. I just, I don't think, and, and how that's going to play out in terms of the numbers that will be yeah. undeniable. Um, I mean, in other words, you, you know, plus 12, you know, in terms of, of what, you know, what a jurisdiction voted for, for Biden, you know, when they voted yesterday was like plus 12, lots of swings. So that what's happening is the gerrymandering and the failure of the Republican Party to control its primaries. Once again, I said this last week, the, the, the GOP could could stop this. It's the it's the brokered primaries that is that is allowing for this nonsense. These people will more than likely lose uh, uh, because they are winning in states that will not tolerate what they're selling. Now, they could try to pivot. It's not working for J.D. Vance. It's not working for Dr. Oz. Dr. Oz is basically in Europe calling it a day, like as far as I can tell. So, so this is, you know, so there, there are signs of hope and maybe, you know, I'm, I'm not, as I said, I'm not going to uh, guarantee it, but um, back to the row issue that we can't, you know, seem to get is I think, I think these issue polling on row I've come to believe are um, not helpful. What do you mean? And that, well, I mean, Kansas. Uh, you know, everyone was was quite surprised by the the sweeping uh, win uh, in Kansas. I think I think if you ask women, are you pissed off? That's that's going to get you your polling. Yeah. I mean, I just I, I think Roe. I think I think it's I think we've transcended Roe with with the with the, with the opinion and the Supreme Court. I I mean, I'm I'm. I'm sort of beyond this. Not that I don't care about it, but from a personal perspective, I don't feel this debate anymore. I'm uh, I'm too old and and uh, and cranky. But uh, but I um, you know obviously I have a daughter and I care about it. But we live in Massachusetts, so it, it doesn't hit us in the I'm way not, that it does. In I have to say, I'm not clear what you're saying about the the. the I think that I I I think if you ask women how they care about Roe, do they want restrictions, whatever, you know, you're not going to get the numbers that showed up in Kansas. And I think what instead Kansas reflected was a lot of women just tired and pissed. Um, well, know, what it also <laughs> reflected is a single issue vote. You weren't being asked to go into a ballot box yeah. to vote for a candidate who has lots of positions on lots of right, issues. On lots of things. You were this asked to vote on one particular issue. And by the way, I would assume that there'd be a similar result as surprised as I was by the margin in Kansas in virtually every state, including a lot of red states. If there was only that issue before yeah. the voters, the question is, how is it going to reflect well, itself come midterms that's, that's, yeah, when the it's Democrats, a multi-issue candidate, obviously? Except for the Democrats would be idiots not to make this the issue. Oh, of course I mean, they should. I mean, it's just crazy. Well, let's, 
Let's move on to this uh, slaying of these um, Muslims in Albuquerque. We have a suspect now, and it turns out, according to reports, that he's upset about his daughter. uh, He's a Muslim himself, right? Yes, he's a Sunni Muslim, apparently upset that his daughter married a Shiite Muslim. Is that Yeah, this is crazy. all about. Yeah, it is, and it's 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 horrifying, and it's you know the personal aspect of it is 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 um, crazy. I don't. I mean, this is sort of like a sectarian violence in the sense that we've never really seen the Sunni Shia division that we've seen in the Middle East play out violently in the United States. We tend to view the Muslim community as monolithic here, um, though it's interesting. Most Muslims in America are of African descent. Most Arabs in America are Christian, just to lay out how how complicated these things are. I'm, me being an Arab American Christian, we're, uh, most Muslims are, are, are not from the Middle East here in the United States, but from Southeast Asia or Africa. So it's a complicated community. And I've never, to my knowledge, I, I, I tried to do some research yesterday, to my knowledge, I don't know of a single case like this. Um, and it, it, it's a it's a good lesson for people who were pushing people like me and commentators to make sweeping judgments about what it might be. Um, uh, uh, you know, is this anti-Muslim hate? We just didn't know, but we knew that a particular community was targeted for reasons that we didn't know. And now we know uh, that it's some combination of the sectarian division with a clearly very conservative sociopathic father uh, and and victims who didn't deserve it. It is just horrifying. I will say... By the way, we didn't I, even say as a predicate for the... There were four uh, Muslims murdered. Yes. Three in short yes, I'm sorry. period of time yes. and one at the end of last year. I'm sorry, Julia. Yeah, but, and the Albuquerque police didn't know that the fourth one was related until more recently. Uh, and all of them... Um, uh, uh, of the four, so one was killed in front of a halal market. One... Uh, uh, One was um, killed after attending a funeral of the other two. One was killed uh, at an Islamic type recreational center. Um, I I think what's important in in the way I do in my book is uh, let's, you know, amongst the horror, let's look at what worked. Right. Because we know what doesn't work. Right. Where that that you don't need to you don't you don't need to remind me that a lot of things don't work. I think when you juxtapose what the Albuquerque political leadership and police department did, the moment they realized we've got something that's not normal, the Muslim community in Albuquerque is 0.3% of the population. So you have four men, four Muslim men dead in such a short period of time, three within a a seven day period. You've got a statistically significant thing going on. And they immediately came out to hear the Muslim community, um, uh, speak praise of law enforcement is not common simply because they're an immigrant community. And a lot of times they have issues with law enforcement. Uh, the mayor uh, and the governor were out there. They, 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 they had lots of resources in terms of, of, of monitoring. And that's also tricky mosques delivering food to elders uh, who were nervous to go out. Cause it did seem like they were a target um, and, and other features that I thought, you know, when you compare this to, some of the nightmares we've seen, Uvalde and other Uvalde being the best example, it is worth taking a pause and saying, okay, amongst this horror and this horrible yeah. story, wow, we can we can lower the tragedy and lower the tension if we just do these basic things as a as a mayor, as a police department. Uh, one little thing I noticed they they translated. Remember the early Uvalde press conferences, including the ones with the governor Abbott, were not 
that's, that's or not translated in Spanish. Point. Hey, Julia, they translated to four religion to four languages, which I thought running, was incredible. We're running short of time, and I know you want to talk about the substance of the yeah. uh, of the uh, new legislation on uh, climate this week. So talk about it. Yeah, no, I just think. I mean, I think you know we're we're viewing it as wins and losses. A huge win for Biden. And, um, you know, in my docket of sort of safety and security, I worry about climate. And it's just worth uh, knowing what the substance of of these provisions are. There's nothing quite like it ever in the history of the United States in terms of its investment in clean energy, like real investment, not like tax credits, but like real investment in clean energy uh, to get this country moving. There are uh, modifications and uh, uh, what do you call it? Like, uh, you know, compromises made for mansion um, uh, and others in terms of what kind of tax credits you can get back for uh, electrical vehicles. Uh, uh, but but I just want to say overall in terms of, is, you know, how do you perceive this legislation? I I perceive it as a safety and security piece of legislation. It is remarkable what was done and and the proof of it, or I don't want to say the proof of it, but Sometimes it helps to listen to the BBC because you hear what foreigners are saying. And I heard a, a person on BBC um, not only singing its praises, people glad that the United States is, has committed to this, uh, but saying uh, from an economic perspective, the U.S. is now back in the game. I mean, the, the game of being who who's going to win uh, uh, the, 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 the battle for the green energy market. And I thought that's worth people knowing that that the world now sees us as competitive, uh, which is also good for our economy. I, I just want to say one thing about it, though. I, I, by the way, I agree with every word you said, and I think it is yeah. spectacular. It's historic. The thing that concerns me are not so much the the um, the concessions, the people like Manchin uh, or uh, Cinema. But the way I always look at broad, whether it's in a state or a national level, broad legislation is what's the piece of this it that going that is going to almost immediately affect real people, and is it, because most of us don't understand the multi-billion-dollar investments and big uh, clean energy companies going to get tax credits. You know, we'll feel indirectly the impact of that down the line. The troubling thing, which I didn't know about this morning, is this uh, EV credit, which yeah. I think a lot of people who want to switch to got electric very vehicles excited about. got excited about until you read this morning that it is very hard for a vehicle uh, to qualify because of the stringent requirements about where the battery is made, where yeah. the elements that go into the battery are made. And people whom I respect, these are not just critics, people who I respect say uh, it's going to be very hard for most yeah. electric vehicles to qualify for the credit. And my worry is, since that's what most people understand best about this, that's including me, by the way, I'm not just, yeah. I mean, I, and I sort of do this for a living. I worry that that may poison some people on that's what is point. otherwise spectacularly yeah. important legislation for our future. Well, because Joe Manchin, right. once again, didn't want any uh, tax credits for EV purchases. He was yeah, in, the, right. in the weeds once right. again. But and so this was, you know, this was done to incentivize the domestic manufacturing and mining. We don't really have that capability. We're in exactly. conversation with places exactly. like Congo and China. Um, and also the idea of America made, I always just find that interesting because like, I mean, what is, what does that even mean in a, in a world in which other countries can supply our manufacturers with cheaper parts and therefore our manufacturers can sell them for cheaper benefits uh everyone uh and i i agree with you 
the, the tax credit is allowable up to half of it. So like 2300, even if it doesn't satisfy these requirements, mm. but the full amount um, is not going to, it's not going to be available to, for like about, I don't know what, like 14 of the 19 mm-hmm. uh, uh, cars out in the market uh, won't, won't be eligible. So it is, it is, you know, yes, let's incentivize. Having said the market. that, let's end we're on that note. You were right. It is historic and it, it is, is really meaningful. We're in the game. We're in we're, the game. We're in the be game. well. Good to see you, Juliette Kayyem. Thanks Juliet so Kayyem. much. Thank you. Thank you very Bye. much. We've been speaking with Juliette Kayyem, former assistant secretary for Homeland Security under President Barack Obama, the faculty chair of the Homeland Security Program at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Her new book, The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters. Coming up next, pickleball is surging in popularity. What's pickleball? Why pickleball? Where is it surging? Well, we're going to speak with Sarah Larson, who's chronicled the rise of pickleball and how it might just unite America. Sarah Larson is next. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Marjorie. In a recent New Yorker piece that I was amazed I could not put down, (laughs) Sarah Larson reports that advocates believe the sport of pickleball might just be enough to reunite a fractured America. She joins us now to discuss the growing popularity of the sport, but first she'll have to explain us what the sport is. And in a few minutes after we talk to her, we'll open the lines to hear your pickleball stories. And if you think it's exactly what we need right now, you can already give us a call and get on hold or text us at 877-301-8970. Sarah, it's great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Well, Sarah Larson, let's start with what Jim just said. What, please, is pickleball? (laughs) Pickleball is a sport. It's a tennis-like sport that combines elements of tennis, badminton, and ping pong. Uh, It's played with a paddle and a ball with holes in it, like a wiffle ball, so, and on a smaller court. So it's it's lighter, it's uh, smaller, and it's a little more accessible for all kinds of people than tennis and 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 other sports too. Um, it's kind of uh, you can get pretty good at it pretty quickly, and then you just want to get better and better, and it's quite fun. <laughs> yeah, and when you say good at it pretty quickly, uh, you mentioned some older woman ends up playing with three burly guys. <laughs> One pairs with one to find out the other three guys are members of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of thing happens a lot. Um, Well, not the, not the Pittsburgh Steelers part, (laughs) but the the yoking of, you know, the bringing together of different kinds of people who find, you know, surprising commonalities on the pickleball court. And she did kick their butts uh, from what I I love that. Okay. So, so you, you've given us this history and it is a great piece that you can get at newyorker.com. Um, but, but why, you know, we have ping pong, you know, that's kind of a fun game. What is it about pickleball (laughs) that just has turned this into such a 
craze? You know, I I think the essence of it is that playing pickleball, you know, you run around, but not too much. Yep. Uh, it's it, the games are shorter and they kind of encourage socializing because it's on a smaller space and people chat between games and people really get addicted to I think it's, you know, a quick endorphin rush, but also connecting to other people. And I think that's really the main thing. I mean, I interviewed many dozens of players of all levels, including pros. There are pro pickleball players. And uh, everybody kind of says the same thing that, you know, it's a fun sport to play, but it's as much for the social element is uh, as the physical. So. Well, I love your, your phrase early in the piece. You talk about the gentle strain on the body. So it's not, <laughs> you know, it, it, other sports like tennis are not exactly gentle strains on the body, are they? No. And I, I've been thinking about this a lot. You know, I'm, I'm middle-aged uh, now. And if I were to be challenged to pick up basketball game or casual <laughs> game of tennis, I know that I could easily embarrass myself uh, depending on, no, I mean, that's probably what would happen, but uh, <laughs> I have more of a chance of success. I think at pickleball, because though there are many excellent players who are extremely athletic. There are a lot of people who play just for fun and who are willing to play with people of different levels and, there are plenty of people who are also beginners. Um, so, yeah, it, it makes people really happy is, <laughs> is the bottom line. And then they just want more of it uh, all the time. Well, so, uh, we're going to talk about how long that happiness yeah. is going to last in a minute. But, I, 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 you know, it seems to me one of the things about intimacy, and I knew virtually nothing about pickleball, except we have a regular caller on the show who's a big pickleball advocate uh, and who we've learned a little from from. Her, the fact that the serve, I watch tennis a decent amount, and particularly in men's tennis, but to some degree in women's tennis, the point is over before the point begins because of these booming 100-mile-an-hour serves. They serve under underhand. Is that is yeah. Did I read that right? Which also, it seems yeah. to me, maybe I'm reading too much into this, starts it on a much more, it's almost like harmony ping-pong kind of thing, <laughs> right? I mean, everybody yeah. can return an underhanded serve, right? Well, almost everybody. Well, almost everybody. Thank you, Marjorie. Almost everybody. Everybody, right? Yeah. Some people are able to serve underhand in such a way that it is very tricky to return. Really? But for the most part, yeah. I mean, those are, you know, the very skilled players. Um, but for the most part, yes, it is easy to return a pickleball first serve. And uh, yeah, they're underhand and they're easier to do. You're not going to dislocate your shoulder. <laughs> Uh, while serving, you know. I have a couple. Of, I have a couple of questions off your great piece. Talking to Sarah Larson with this great piece in the New Yorker about uh, pickleball, one that's going to save the country. You <laughs> you talk about its history, founded in 1965 by some guy, I forget who, and you said they were looking for a nutty name. So that's how I came. With, the word was nutty in quotes, but you don't say why pickleball. I mean, I mean, that was a random selection on what was that about? Pickleball was invented by three dads uh, in 1965 on Bainbridge Island off Seattle, and uh, they were they were designing a game to be played with kids, their kids. Um, and that's one of the reasons it's designed to be sort of equitable and has the underhand serve and all that stuff. But also there are conflicting stories from the families themselves about how the name came mm. about. Um, the most famous story is that it was named after the dog of one of the families, but that is actually was then debunked by people in those families too, that like the dog came after the sport there. And then there's another story that it was named after a pickled boat, which is a whole, 
so rather than get into all of that, Who knows? Uh, okay. <laughs> I quoted the dad as saying they wanted a nutty name, but I think it's just a fun name and they wanted it to be kind of to catch on. You okay. Know, that's- So here's my concern. You quote somebody who we quote quite often twice in your piece. You talk about Robert Putnam's world changing uh, uh, book, Bowling Alone, obviously from the Harvard Kennedy School. And he's a terrific guy, I should say, in addition to everything else. So, yeah, yeah, can Pickleball Save America, the title, you sort of say yes. But then when you write extensively about how there are already, I think I've been, there are two leagues. And, you know, know, compete. Well, I don't know if they even use the word competing because it's not you know, sweet, it's not, you know, sociable Uh enough. You expect the Saudis are going to get involved next in a pickleball a la uh, a golf. Is, is the league thing as friendly and and, and a set of enterprises as the sport is supposed to be, or does this sort of undercut the whole deal? Well, I mean, that's a complicated question, but yeah, there are these two pro tours uh, that are sort of in competition, but, not really. I mean, um, and then there's also a league called Major League Pickleball, um, which is team play. Mm. Uh, it's basically just a, you know, it's a burgeoning professional realm in which multiple entities are trying to make things happen with varying amounts of money. And then competition starts to ratchet up a bit. So, um, you know, it's kind of just like any classic American thing involving money and competition. Uh, <laughs> but so he- I Oh, go Sorry. ahead. No, you go ahead, well, Sarah. I think generally um, all of the professionalizing entities basically make a lot of people happy because everyone in pickleball wants the sport to grow. And okay. all of these things are aiming to do that. It's just sometimes they're slightly at cross purposes, et cetera. So here's what I want to know, though. What is it about pickleball? Because you figure, okay, people go to play golf. They don't have to belong to fancy golf clubs all the time. They can go to the municipal course and there's a foursome or something and they go out and they chit chat all the way around the country. Uh Um, And there are people that play other uh, kind of sports, softball leagues and stuff. Why is pickleball unique in its ability to unite the country? Well, I should say that I, you know, the name of the piece. Um, <laughs> Can pickleball is, save America? Well, exactly. That's the web title. The, the <laughs> title in the print magazine is "One More Game." Uh, so oh. I, oh. I, I, oh no! Just, oh but, no! Well, no, that's that's totally uh, <laughs> legit. But pickleball is kind of unique in its ability to create community uh, among sports. You know, because often people play with kind of rotating groups of people and community setups and because it encourages conversation and connecting with new people okay. it's somewhat remarkable i mean you don't think of golf as creating community um no you, know, you don't you can play it in a small space in a city or a suburb you know and you can kind of improvise courts and it it happens in a, you know in a fairly intimate way and it does encourage conversation and stuff so i think that um and it makes people so happy. So all these sort of giddy people, you know, in close connection with one another, um, it's just a recipe for community building if done right. But And they're happy because? <laughs> because it's fun. And because they're happy to be doing something in real life with other people and meeting new people. And Okay. Yeah. And it's, 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 the pandemic has played a role here too. You're right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. everybody, so many people were in their houses and life was monotonous and uh, isolated. And then you go to 
a pickleball court down the street or in your driveway or uh, at the modified tennis court near you and um, things are suddenly a lot more delightful. You know, by the way, the reason we're having such a problem with this, Sarah, so you don't think we're strange, uh, the whole concept of fun is sort of alien to Marjorie and me yeah, in this sure, era, I, so I, I'm, I'm yeah. sure you got it. So before you go away, uh, are you now a pickleball player after this extensive reporting? And it's a great piece in The New Yorker. You should check it, it is out, a everybody. Great piece. Uh, are you, you know, a pickleball player? I um, I was taking a little vacation right after this piece came out and I went to Vermont and I started playing pickleball with some nice people I met uh, at a local court and I made a bunch of new friends oh and it was God. totally delightful. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a pickleball player. Okay, so just, just one last thing for me. So when you go to this court in Vermont, I mean, how do you do it? If, we, if people want to go out now and they want to enter the exciting, happy satisfying world, world of pickleball, pickleball yeah. they just look up in online or find their local pickleball place and just show up and try to yeah, persuade and there, yeah there are lots of websites and apps that you know direct people to different playing times and playing spaces that's a whole industry in itself in a way especially in new york where people really have to um kind of be creative in order to do it because there aren't that many courts but there are also lots of venues opening up that are like top golf or kind of like sports bar type places where people play too so look out for that can i tell you i'm just waiting for the day and and counting the minutes till i don't know jamie raskin and jim jordan go play pickleball <laughs> and and all things will be right yeah with or the maybe world. Trump and Joe Biden. You I never mean, why, know. why not aim big? <laughs> hey, Sarah Larson, the piece is spectacular. We really Thanks appreciate so your time. Thanks so much for joining us. It. Really appreciate yeah, it. We, yeah, it, it is a great piece. And people, it, it's, as Sarah said, it's different than the actual New Yorker magazine, but online you can see Can Pickleball Save America and NewYorker.com. And the author is Sarah Larson. Sarah, thank you so Thanks, much for your Sarah. great Good piece. To meet you. And thank you for being with us. Uh, as I said, we were speaking with Sarah Larson. She's a staff writer for the great New Yorker magazine on the rise of pickleball. Now we're going to take your calls on the matter. Are you a pickleball enthusiast? Do you think there's some hope for Jim playing pickleball? I think this could be the ticket for a whole new athletic career for Jim Browdy. Our number is 877-301-8970. You can call us and text us with your pickleball adventures or advice. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Thank you. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brady and Marjorie. And uh, the topic of the moment is pickleball. By the way, the line's filled up, I want you to know, Marjorie, in like a nanosecond. <laughs> literally in a nanosecond. The web uh, title of the piece. And I have to say, in all fairness to Sarah, it doesn't misrepresent what the piece is about. She makes a lot of references, we said, to the infamous, and I shouldn't say infamous, the famous bowling alone. Yep. About how people are in their own separate little things. They don't go to church. They don't bowl together, literally and figuratively anymore. Can pickleball save America. Let me read you a few of the texts here. Pickleball is awesome, says Debbie from Beverly. What other game would you find opponents helping each other to improve their game or congratulating them for a good play? Yesterday, I commented to the people I was playing with, where else can you exercise and laugh till you cry? Don't knock it until you try it. And you mentioned that golf doesn't create community. Someone texted and said they totally disagree. Golf does create community unless you're black, Jewish, or a woman. They write 877-301-8970. So we want all your pickleball uh, stories uh, right here. Let's go to Paul, who will not tell us where he is, but we know he's in eastern Massachusetts. Welcome to the show, Paul. How are you? 
Are you talking to me? I believe I We're am. We're talking to you, Paul. Is your name Paul? Oh, I told your I'm kidding. Your phone person. I live in Arlington, Massachusetts. I'm kidding. Arlington, I'm kidding. Massachusetts. We're thrilled okay. to have you. What's up, Paul? Anyway, um, are you are you there? Yeah. Yes. So, Jim Browdy, I got this for you. Yeah. yeah. You never checking out pickleball yeah. would be like somebody living in Cambridge who loves hot bars and salad bars and have never heard of Whole Foods Market. <laughs> Why? Why do you say that? I'm willing to be challenged here. Why do you say that? Oh, I'm not. I'm not challenging you. I'm inviting you. Oh, I'm inviting both you and Marjorie to explore the sport. You'd love it. You'd be accepted. You'd have fun. And when they're saying you can have fun the first day because it's much easier to learn than tennis, it's underhanded serve. There's a few rules to learn. It takes you, you know, one or two plays, but you can have fun the first day, and yet you can get better and better and better at it over the month. So it's a great sport. I used to play tennis. Yeah. Now I play pickleball, and it's doubled. So. It certainly is appealing to the baby boomers who are now 55, 65, oh, okay. or 75, because you don't have to work so hard, and yet it's fun, and it's so social, and in general, the people are kind and welcoming. So I, wow. I recommend it to you both. Paul, before you go away, and that you made it sound very appealing, before, when you say I enjoy it, I, I don't know if I've ever disclosed, I am the only person I know who has struck out in slow-pitch softball. <laughs> Would that be an inhibiting thing or you think i could give it a go anyway how are you at ping pong i'm actually really good at ping, really good because you don't have to go anywhere really? basically, is that right no i'm actually quite it's one of my few decent wow. semi-sporting yeah. Yeah. activities I'm, I'm yeah truly, I'm, I'm truly excited for the possibility of this transforming your life <laughs> so paul, 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 paul hold on before you go paul i want to ask how it works Marjorie, out for i don't you. mean to this Marjorie, i don't mean to not be talking to you that's okay but, you know, that's when okay. callers call in, they generally love Marjorie and they put Jim a little down because he's the sarcastic, smart yeah, one. Jerk, right, that's yeah. right. I, I think Jim Browdy's wonderful and he makes you laugh. One of the best. Oh, exactly. Oh, he is wonderful. He is wonderful. That's he, not true. He does. He, he, no, he's great. Oh, but I want to ask you, Paul. I want to ask you, Paul, though. So do you like make dates to go down there? Do you call up your women friends or men friends and say, let's go at 3.30 on Tuesday afternoon? You all get down to the pickleball court mm. or do you just show up or how does it work? Well, this. This is one reason I play pickleball three to seven times a week. It's because, um, well, I'll, I'll reveal the secret. There's playtimescheduler.com. If you go there, mm-hmm. anybody can go there, you will find that there are, on a typical day, 14 get-togethers listed. And wow. it might say, we're going to play in Belmont at that uh, pickleball court in the middle of Belmont. Yeah. We can take 12 people. We have three nets. Seven people are signed up. I put my name there. I show up at Belmont at the time, and immediately I'm part of a quite lovable, loving group, and we're playing a fun sport. Or if I want more of a challenge, I go to Reading, where the play is excellent. I've played in Medford, Belmont, Watertown, Brooklyn. Wow. wow. I played once near Castle Island. No, I played twice in Castle Island. Uh, near Castle Island, there's a court there in South Boston, and there, unusually, almost everybody's under 40, whereas in wow. most places... The majority of people are over 40. That's a fun group. So it has really added to my life immeasurably wow. in terms of a community. Pickleball is a community. And I'll just mention this. I was playing in Medford mm-hmm. where we have a Medford recreation 9 to 11 a.m. seven days a week. You can just show up. That one's not on playtimescheduler.com. But I was there the other day in the evening, and there were two young men, 25, 28, excellent players playing mm-hmm. singles. And singles is unusual because usually people play doubles, you know, because we're lazy and don't want to work that hard, but we do want to have fun. 
So I watched them, and they were excellent. We had trouble playing doubles because it was so fun to watch them. And I talked to both of them afterwards, and they said, well, I used to play tennis. I still do sometimes, but I really like pickleball better. I said, why? And these two young men said, tennis people are just not as nice. <laughs> so I don't mean Paul. to diss tennis. We got it, Paul. Hey, Paul, that was an excellent call. You're an unbelievable spokesperson for the sport of pickleball, and thanks for uh, making the case. You were terrific. By the way, Paul from Worcester texts and says, on Pickleball Saving America, Obama replies, why don't you play Pickleball with Mitch McConnell? <laughs> Let's go to Lucas in Boston. You have to figure that out. Google it. You'll figure it out. Lucas yeah. in Boston, welcome. Hi. Hi. How's it going? Excellent. Fine. Thank you. I'm one of those people who listen because they're just obsessed with Marjorie. So, so much. Oh, That's the only Lucas. reason I show up for work. Thank me too. you. I need someone to be obsessed with me. That's great. Thank ahead, you very Lucas. much. What's up? <laughs> So, well, I was a tennis fan my whole life, um, and I never played pickleball until my mom, who was before a borderline recluse, um, <laughs> she started telling me how she was, you know, going out and playing with groups of 50 and 100 people, you know, four nights a week to play pickleball, and I eventually went with her. Uh, but the story that I wanted to tell, and I think it gives some substance to what you guys were just talking about, is uh, this past December, um, I went back home to Arizona. Um, in a pretty pretty red neighborhood, and I'm a Massachusetts highly progressive uh, young person, um, and there was tons and tons of people she brought me to play pickleball with, um, and I was wearing a mask like a good uh, uh, boy because it was deep in the pandemic, um, and we ended up talking to some of these people who were you know very skeptical about our mask um, that we had just played with, um, and we had actually a really good conversation post pickleball, and we ended up convincing one of them to actually go out and schedule their vaccination appointment. Oh, so, my God. You know, wow. Connecting, uh, connecting Trump and Biden, but it, it was an interesting thing where people that probably would I would never have spoken to in any other circumstance got connected. Okay. Well, you are, the, you are the guy, story. Lucas, that's pickleball diplomacy, and that's what we were talking about in the New Yorker piece. That's Thank his... you very much. And, Lucas, before you go away, if your mother was a recluse, was it the concept, concept that lured her out or a friend who played? What, what was the thing? Yeah. It was a friend who had okay. been, it was a Mahjong friend, which was pretty much her only, uh, you know, a ma- yeah, exactly. A Mahjong friend had started doing it and she got convinced to go once Love and, it. you know, um, you know, now she's pickleball everything. <laughs> Lucas, that's an excellent that call. Great call. Thank you very much Sheila, for making it. You see, Sheila, she texts and says her son was the doubles pickleball champion in high school, 2009, wow. North Attleboro. And uh, somebody else just said, my 78-year-old dad has been obsessed with pickleball for two years, just visiting from Maryland, brought his own paddle, found a court one town, o- town over, enjoyed multiple pickleball games with complete strangers, and he's in the Pickleball Olympics. Pickleball Olympics? Well, he says anybody can sign up for the Pickleball oh. Olympics. And, and this is from... Um, uh, it doesn't sign, but it says, Pickleball has changed my life. I take a break from my home desk. I move. I laugh. My friend group has tripled intergenerational opportunities. We both ought to play pickleball. Oh, listen to this. My boyfriend, who's an all-American collegiate athlete, and I play one another in pickleball. That's why it's so fun and amazing. Because it's a leveler. It's not, it's not only a uniter, theoretically, yeah. as Lucas described, or a, a barrier breaker. Yeah. It's also a uniter. It's well, a you, leveler. Well, you think about it. Like, one of my kids has is is always been a great soccer player. She still plays soccer. She's in her late 20s, goes out in a couple of nights a week. But that, you can really whack. I mean, you can get really well, hurt. She's a great stuff. soccer player. What are you she was a great she... soccer player. But I mean, that's the, a lot of those sports are very intimidating. Either, even softball is intimidating. Who wants to strike out multiple times in slow pitch softball? You know, you get up there. But this, I think you have a lot of chances to redeem yourself, right? 
You know, I, the only question for me is because I have such limited time, obviously, would I be willing to give up rugby to go play pickleball? And <laughs> well, exactly. I, I, I just I, rugby, I lacrosse, basketball. These things or are pickleball. intimidating sports. Marion well, Middlebury. How can you take it seriously when it's called pickleball? Exactly. Right? You can't feel like a loser even well, if you're losing when you're playing pickleball. Can I tell you something? Other than people's opinions of Donald Trump, we're getting hundreds of texts here. I would say there is almost unanimity. Uh, uh, not only talking about how much fun it is, but subscribing to the notion that it is this great uniter, leveler, you know, equalizer kind of deal. Let's go to Marion Middlebury. You're next on Boston Public Radio. Hey. Hi, Jim and Marjorie. Hey. Um, first time caller, long Thank time you. listener. Thank you. I just have a quick, funny pickleball story. Please. So I'm a snowbird. Yeah. So in, I know when we go down to Florida, and a few years ago I heard all about this pickleball thing. And But I'm a longtime tennis player, so... I think this should be an easy sport to pick up. So my husband and I go to Walmart. We buy a couple of pickleball rackets for $12.50 each. I go down to the court, run into some people. We're like, and I'm like, you know, this is our first time playing pickleball. And they said, well, do you have a racket? And I said, yeah, we've got these rackets right here. And they said to us, well, that's a piece of crap. <laughs> oh, no. They said, you have to spend at least $70 on a racket in and, order to play. And did you? And I said, what? Well, well, I said I have played tennis my entire life. And don't forget, I'm a Yankee from New England, so I'm fairly cheap. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, I've never paid $70 for a tennis racket, and I've played tennis since the sixth grade. So we still have our $12.50 racket. We, we do enjoy playing. Our 55-plus community has got eight courts, and we're putting in four How new courts. How do we courts? miss all this? Courts. How do we miss it? Yeah, because we're too busy worrying about what Donald Trump is doing. Mary, thank out, you like, for yeah. your story, too. Listen we have to time this. for one more. Okay, This is ahead. a young person who says that th- their grandparents from the late 70s and all the grandchildren, they range from age 16 to 30, play pickleball every time they get together with their grandparents. It's a great cross-generational game. You know, Maybe. literally, we we have missed this whole We've movement, it, except for that wonderful caller well, you who know, talks about pickleball all the time. I guess we're spending too much time talking about politics, and that's really depressing. We should be talking more about pickleball. We'd feel better about our about our lives. Jared from Boston. Hello, Jared. Hello, Jared. Hey, Jared. Yeah, how are you? Excellent. Good. Great. I've just got uh, a couple hundred students, and I see that they this last year or so that we've been coming back from the pandemic – they all want to play. They've turned our basketball courts into pickleball courts. We have some older couples that work with them, and they all play. And it's just regardless of where they're from in the country or, like, what their major is or what they're doing, this pickleball is huge. They it's love it. And where you say you have a couple hundred students, where are we talking about? Uh, Cambridge. Wow. I mean, this is – Jared, thank yeah, you for earlier the Earlier we get the medical student in Dartmouth. That they, yeah. they, 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 they play – he plays with his classmates all summer long. They set the whole pickleball – a pickleball thing up on a tennis court. They have mini tournaments. So what's the moral of this story? The moral is we should get off, get out of our chairs, get out Mm -hmm. of the studio gym and go play pickleball. I'll let you know how I make out. Okay. I want you to know if I could get out of my chair, I'd be the first. (laughs) No, really. I'd be the, if someone can help me out of my chair at the end of the show. Thank you. I will meet you on the uh, court. Okay. Wow. And you should read uh, Sarah Larson's piece, which is what got us into this. It's great in the New Yorker. Check it out. I'm psyched. I might like this. You might like it. Okay. Coming up. A New Bedford light and pro-public investigation into New Bedford's fishing industry has revealed that private equity firms and foreign investors control an outsized portion of the ground fish market, while labor conditions for fishermen are deteriorating. Journalist Will Sennett joins us discussion listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7. 
GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. So foreign private equity types have their hooks into New England's fishing industry, according to a joint investigation between the New Bedford Light and ProPublica. Now members of Congress are asking questions as well. Will Senator, the New Bedford Light, joins us to discuss their investigation with ProPublica. Will, it's great to see you. Yeah, thank you. Hey, Jim. Hey, Marjorie. Hey, thank you very much uh, for joining us, Will, and thanks for this great uh, piece of investigative reporting. Why don't you start by telling us about uh, the gentleman, the fisherman you wrote about, Jerry Lehman, and his dilemma. Sure. So uh, we started the story um, just, first of all, I'm a local reporter in New Bedford, Massachusetts. It's the biggest commercial fishing port in the United States, uh, generating some $11 billion a year. And uh, I cover the fishing industry there. And we had heard at, you know from fishermen, public, these public hearings with fisheries officials that Private equity was really taking its aim at consolidating the fishing industry. And we went into this. There was a handful of companies. We really centered in on this one company, Blue Harvest Fisheries. Um, It's based in New Bedford. It's a very large company and has only uh, really started since 2015. And, uh, yeah, we we spoke to managers there. We spoke to uh, captains and crew members who work on their vessels. And one was this captain, uh, Jerry Lehman, who uh, was courageous enough, really, to you know, take me and a photographer uh, for multiple interviews. We, we sat down with him. We looked at settlement sheets that really traced uh, essentially what are the uh, growing inequities of, of the fishing industry. Who is uh, who owns Blue Harvest? What's the deal with it? What's with the organization? So it's kind of an interesting story there. The uh, Like I said, we went into the story looking uh, largely at private equity. What we found was pretty surprising, and that is that uh, the you know, Blue Harvest Fisheries, one of the, the biggest companies on the East Coast based in New Bedford, the private equity firm that, that is backing its acquisitions is a private equity firm called Bregal Partners, Bregal Partners. And what's odd about them is they're actually a family firm. It's, uh, it's, it, it traces back to a Swiss holding company from the New York headquarters, a holding company called Kofra Holding, which is the wholly owned investment vehicle of one of the wealthiest families in Europe, uh, certainly uh, you know, I think their net worth is estimated to be around $30 billion, uh, the Brennickmeyer family. This is a Dutch family, right? The Dutch family, yes. So essentially, they are emblematic, as your reporting suggests, of who is controlling the fishing industry, as you said, and I think it may shock people, in the largest fishing port in the United States, in New Bedford. Yeah, it shocked even uh, Captain Lehman and people who work for their the company who had never quite heard this before. Uh, What's you know, happened to his business as a result of Blue Harvest's involvement? To him directly? Yeah, to him. Uh, well, w- what was seen looking at these settlement sheets that were really volunteered to us is that uh, the company is expanding and has done so largely by pushing the burden of costs onto fishermen who are employed on its vessels. That's things like uh, maintenance, uh, fuel, uh, this thing called the leasing, which is you know, the rights to catch fish. Um, uh, even fees like a, a $400 charge every time they, they park the company-owned vessel at the company-owned dock. 
Now, uh, Captain Lehman is a ground fisherman, and it's, uh, that's really the, the market that this company, Blue Harvest, is, is, is centered in. And, uh, you know, he previously worked for a mid-sized local company in Maine that was acquired by Blue Harvest, and he stayed on the same boat uh, as, through the transition. And, I mean, it really came down to our reporting, the, 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 essentially the question he asked me as a reporter that I tried to answer, which is, tell me how I can catch 50,000 pounds of fish and not know what my kids are going to have for dinner. Yeah, that was a killer quote. You mentioned how he's got uh, three children. And you also are, are right, Wilson, on how he, uh, in the past 14 months, he netted 14 cents a pound and the crew about 7 cents each, a tiny fraction of the 228 per pound that something like a haddock typically fetches at auction. So they're being squeezed into poverty, it sounds like. Yeah, that's how it was outlined to me. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's, it's fair to say that there are, you know, inequities in the fishing industry, I mean, in the world are, you know, they're nothing new, right? But what this story really uh, revealed to me as a reporter, which, which I was surprised by, is just how vast those inequities have grown in something as simple as the fishing industry. You know, it's interesting. In a couple of minutes after you, we're going to talk to Dan Adams, who's the brilliant cannabis reporter for The Globe. Mm -hmm. And when the law passed, we were all heartened by the fact that there were a limit to three, I think, was the number of establishments, retail outlets under the law that the voters uh, passed, that one company could control. But by, uh, I guess, technically legal behaviors, obviously the big boys were able to expand their reach and local operators who were – wanting to get into the industry were, were totally screwed. And there's that kind of manipulation here as well. For example, they're on groundfish. Explain what groundfish are, by the way. You mentioned Sure. That. It's kind of an industry term. Yeah. Um, people are most familiar with it probably with uh, McDonald's fish filet or, you know, fish and chips at your local restaurant. It's a collection of uh, quite a few species of fish that are found at the, you know, lower on the ocean. Things like pollock, haddock, or uh, very notably in this area, uh, cod. And one of the things that NOAA theoretically does to ensure that the big boys don't control everything is they sent uh, they set a a cap, do they not, on how much a company can fish? Yeah, of the you mean fish, uh, right? NOAA, the federal regulatory body? No, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, the, the, so there is a cap. It's a fifteen point five percent cap on the total amount of uh, well uh, permits that a company can own. Uh, and that cap is very high. I mean, you look at the West Coast, uh, th- these things are all managed regionally. So on the West Coast, uh, the, the permit cap is 2.7%. Um, here in New England, uh, it, it was only rained down from 20% to 15.5% in the last few years. And it, it's, uh, I mean, it's essentially enough that seven companies can control the entire industry. It, it's it's uh, uh, How do they many- justify, how does NOAA justify the cap being six times higher on the Atlantic than it is on the Pacific. Well, I've had it explained to me a few ways. One way is from a fishery official who said they determined this based on what they deem to be monopolistic practices. So uh, it's it's not if they can control, uh, you know, a, a lot of it. It's the amount that they, the, the maximum amount they can own that will not allow them to squeeze or like limit, uh, you know, supply to artificially increase price. And that's the number that they deemed uh, 15.5%. We're talking to Will Sennett. He's a reporter for the New Bedford Light. Will, uh, the fishing industry has been around you know, forever. New Bedford has been a huge port forever. So how did this all come to pass in just the last few years? What, what changed or sparked to make this happen? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's uh, like you said, it's an you know, ancient industry, especially in New England. 
Um, what a, a lot of people in New Bedford, all across New England, really deem to be the starting point of this massive uh, consolidation we've seen uh, it was around 2010, this regulatory, really an overhaul called catch shares. Um, it, it, it was, it's, you know, fisheries regulations, quite dry and complicated world, but this one was pretty interesting. It essentially changed uh, how permits are, are, are granted, that being going from a system where what's limited is days at sea, the total amount of fish you can catch per trip, to essentially property rights is how it is now, which is um, a company owns a certain percentage of what federal scientists deem to be the total you know, sustainable level of catch, and those permits are owned in perpetuity. Um, there was quite a bit of resistance to this regulatory shift when, when it happened. This is, finally went through in 2010. Um, and it was really promoted by a lot of conservation groups, environmental groups that you know, kind of aligned with some of the biggest businesses. Uh, you know, the, part, part of it is making the domestic supply more predictable, so it can compete with these you know f- foreign companies that are you know, in the North Atlantic, Norwegian, Icelandic companies that ship in fish. You know, that are subsidized by their governments and fish in, uh, ship in fish at a uh, very cheap rate. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's a uh, it was you know really compared to at the time similar to the enclosure of the commons which is you know back 400 years ago when yeah. they granted uh private property rights to uh uh what were then you know uh you know serfs or the early landowners and uh you know what followed then uh, 400 years ago and what has followed now is you know a, a really growing and vast inequity you know we talked a second ago about noah setting these thresholds much higher on the east coast than on the west coast uh and we we're not going to go into the weeds about how they circumvent even those that high uh, threshold that you talked about. But there, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Will, there's also uh, statutory language, congressional language about what percentage of the industry, am I right, that foreign investors can control? What's the status with that? There is, yeah. So this this also traces back quite a ways to the 70s when, uh, you know, uh, you guys might remember it, but the, uh, mostly Russian trawlers were – perched yes, right against the yes. Boston, New England coastline, really depleting regional fish stocks. Um, the Magnuson Sea, which is you know a, a kind of a maritime farm bill, uh, was set up to to first of all establish or push foreign trawlers 200 miles off the coast, and a later amendment uh, limited foreign ownership of a U.S. fishing vessel to 25 percent. Now, uh, that's a federal law, but we found that compliance is essentially voluntary. It's a you know we were told by a maritime lawyer in D.C. that it's basically an honor system. That is, they um, essentially check a box. They you police comply, themselves, essentially. It's self-policed, yep. So, you know, one of the biggest barriers to the story was uh, transparency. <laughs> I mean, on many fronts, the fishing industry is notoriously opaque. A lot of that is by, um, you know, uh, intentional. Uh, but, yeah, as far as, as far as the ownership, the foreign ownership of this company – the extent of it, uh, we couldn't officially determine. So, is the natural is the is the trend line here that if Congress and we'll talk about some members of Congress, including our two senators from Massachusetts, who I know have interest in this, uh, in addition to Richard Blumenthal from uh, Connecticut, mm-hmm. I'm sure some others as well. It, it, from your piece, the what I take away is the trend line is such that ultimately we're going to get to a point where all the Jerry Lehmans are out of business and everything is controlled by these big boys, some of whom are foreign and some of whom are domestic 
uh, private equity types, but essentially a big business enterprise rather than one where small business fishermen are trying to make a living for their families and their communities. Yeah, you know, what's funny is the responses that we've heard uh, since the story came out is not just people from you know the fishing industry, but also people in farming communities in Western Mass who said, uh, you know, wow, this is this is, feels a lot like what's happened to us too. Really? I mean, yeah, it, it's you know, I mean, you could even look at it like a, a your local retail store or your um, looking across the street at a laundromat, right? I mean, there, there's you know, private equity has really taken a, a, a hold of quite a few industries: shoes, uh, clothing, toys. And uh, fish, I mean, honestly, seems to be a bit late to the game, but they're they're in it now. Well, what's the environmental impact of all this? Um, it, it's hard to say. I mean, the uh, in, in some sense, you know, a lot of the national or I guess regional dialogue around the fishing industry is really funneled through cod, um, right. and it makes sense based on where we are. Uh, but um, cod is kind of a you know, it's a uh, just one part of the fishing industry. I mean, uh, there's been. Um, quite a strong recovery of a lot of these species over the last two decades. And overfishing remains a serious problem in the U.S. and the world. Um, but if, you know, if we trust the numbers of you know, federal scientists who set these limits, there's hundreds of millions of pounds of ground fish that are allowed to be caught each year. Um, to be, you know, that's not all in the ocean. That's allowed to be caught to maintain a sustainable level of fish in the ocean. And, uh, you know, the... the I, I, you know, it, it's really hard to say. I mean, counting fish in the ocean is a challenging feat. Um, there's no doubt there have been environmental impacts. Uh, there's a, it's a, it's, it, but you know, um, trusting the numbers, the industry uh, is still alive and and sustainable by by their metrics. We're talking to Will Sennett from the New Bedford Light. Before he goes, we're going to tell, he's going to tell us what the New Bedford Light I is. I hope so, it's yeah. A fascinating uh, operation. But anyway, uh, Jim mentioned that some senators, Elizabeth Warren, Ed Markey, Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut, are looking into this. What can uh, the government, what, what can the Senate, Congress do about this? Yeah, the, the um, so it was kind of two different fronts. The senators in Massachusetts uh, both called for greater federal oversight on the fishing industry and you know, honestly, it's a bit unclear what that means. Uh, there's a great amount of, of uh, regulatory oversight on the fishing industry. Um, and Senator Blumenthal in Connecticut uh, called on the DOJ to investigate uh, in terms of antitrust issues raised. Uh, I know the DOJ is a bit busy these days, but... Uh, we hope they're busy these days. Go ahead. <laughs> but, uh, you know, those are the two fronts of, of what these senators called for. Unfortunately, it's, it's hard to, you know, um, push any policy that really confronts the growing inequities of this world we live in. Um, it's a difficult feat. I mean, there's a lot of people, whether it's at NOAA or the regional governments, who are very dedicated to the sustainability uh, and the livelihood of, of fishermen. It's, um, uh, I wish I had an answer. I wish it was as simple as the senator's calling on on uh, something but, you to know, do. I don't want to lose people, again, in the weeds, as I say, but while you're complimenting NOAA, it, they're the ones, that, are they the ones that come up with this 15% Cap thing? E- economist at NOAA, yes. Okay. So, but it seems to me from reading your piece, they've drafted it in such a way that even I, who know nothing about business, could circumvent it because as you described, well, there's a 15%, 15.5% cap on ground fish. So they make sure on certain species of ground fish, they're only doing one or 2%, mm-hmm. which allows them to far exceed the limit on other fish above 15% as long as their average comes in under 15%. Right. I could fix that in about 30 seconds, <laughs> couldn't I? Uh, yeah, you could try. Um, it's, you know, like you said, if you don't want to get in the weeds here, it, it gets tangled pretty quick. But, yeah, there's quite a few issues around, 
you know, first of all, these aggregate limits that allow yeah. you to own, you know, as much as you know, twenty percent of one species of fish, like this company, um, you know, or these other kind of uh, more uh, or less transparent markets, like leasing, where a company there's no limitations, where a company can lease uh, the rights to catch more fish at a market rate that allows them to to really consolidate mm-hmm. in, in a more quiet uh, way because there's really no transparency. There's some transparency in ownership, none in leasing. Um, what we've heard from a lot of people that seems like a good start is just more transparency. I mean, it, it that's a, seems like a pretty baseline, simple approach to yeah. better understanding this industry and its inequities. Well, you're forcing it. So Marjorie said a minute ago, we had one of the leaders of New Bedford Light after it was created mm. with us, and that was great. But for those who w- weren't part of that discussion, tell us about this wonderful project down there in New Bedford. Sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, so the New Bedford Light, it's a online news organization. It was started last summer after quite a long time, uh, I actually started with it before we launched uh, about a year and a half ago. And it's uh, really a response to the local newspaper in, in New Bedford. Marjorie, I know you're from Fall River. I'm sure you're familiar with the New Bedford well, Standard Times. I worked, she worked, I worked the at the Standard, Standard Times. Times. Oh, did you really? Actually, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. I, I didn't know I that. On and off for several years. When it used to be a really good local newspaper and tragically um, it slipped. Yeah. Well, you know, it, interestingly, I mean, it got bought out by Gannett. Mm-hmm. Uh, which uh, hedge fund in its own right, you know, it's uh, <laughs> the, uh, you know, so um, yeah, I mean, it, Gannett, which owns a lot of newspapers in America, USA Today Network, um, really gutted the paper, uh, laid off staff, left it a ghost. And uh, the team at the New Bedford Light, uh, our columnists, our editors, they, they started it um, in a response to that, really trying to bring coverage to an area like New Bedford, which is severely undercovered and, um, you know, where, you know, which <laughs> interestingly has the top earning commercial fishing port in the country, yet double the state's uh, rate of poverty. And, you know, quite frankly, we had a lot of ground to cover when we launched. And this was this was part of that. What's the website for the New Bedford Light? It's uh, New Bedford Light, L-I-G-H-T dot org. Great. Terrific reporting. Yeah, and it's a wonderful operation. Will. Can we say that Will has a relationship to the show? No, here? we cannot. We cannot? <laughs> sure. Well, we cannot since you've said it, you may be related to Charlie a regular said it. guest Charlie of ours. Said it, a great lifelong reporter. Whatever happened to him, by the way? Yeah, I Whatever happened to him? I taught him everything he knows and he, and he, and he left. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, I'm very impressed that you followed in your father's footsteps, Will Sennett. And it's congratulations really on a great piece of reporting that couldn't, wasn't easy to do, and it's a great piece. Will, great Thanks to see you. Yeah, thank you very Lots much for having me on. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Uh, that was uh, Will Sennett, son of Charlie Sennett, who's a reporter for the New Bedford Light, which you should also check out. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a response to Standard Times in New Bedford, really slipping, as Will just said. And, you know, um, well, it, it's just tragic. Anyway, up next, you're going to say something, Jim? No, I'm just listening to you. Okay. Up next, the legislature has adopted a host of reforms to Massachusetts marijuana law. Boston Globe cannabis reporter Dan Adams joins us to discuss. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Mardrigan in their marathon session on Beacon Hill, which was not quite marathon enough as far as I'm concerned. At the end of last month, lawmakers approved a marijuana industry reform bill, which attempts to right some of the wrongs of the original cannabis legalization, which, by the way, you did on the ballot. You, meaning the voters, did on the ballot 2016. Joining us now is Dan Adams from the Boston Globe. He's their cannabis reporter, author of This Week in Weed, the definitive marijuana newsletter. Dan, it's great to talk to you. Great to be back, guys. Thanks for having me. Hey, Dan, thank uh, you. It's a fun segment on pickleball. (laughs) Do you you play? You You look like you're an athlete, actually. Do you play? Oh, no. You know, I, I was taught once by a slightly over-serious guy, you know, who, like, took it a little too seriously, considering that he was uh, teaching two people who had never picked up a racket before how to play, and he, he took a little bit too much pleasure in absolutely crushing us. So, oh, so the answer I, is no oh. now. Yeah, no, not really. Uh, I'm sorry. But, you know, I, it could be a good fundraiser for GBH. We were thinking about it, actually, yeah. We could have I'm a stoned gonna... pickleball tournament. We could have a stoned pi- <laughs> That's right. And what do pickleball players wear? Is there a preferred outfit for pickleball players? I mean, do you wear stripes? Do you wear checkers? I mean, do you they actually, do you know, they, co- we didn't get, they cover themselves in brine before they play. Did you? Okay, enough of this. I mean, this is embarrassingly juvenile. It's sort of like when we make cannabis jokes or yes, puns when we have Dan Adams pickles on. Pickles to eat after the tournament is over. Okay, of course. fine. Okay. So, so let's get back to marijuana, uh, Dan Adams. So the, the uh, up in Beacon Hill, they've uh, uh, made some reforms in the marijuana, marijuana industry. What did they do? Yeah, so this is like the biggest rewrite of state laws around marijuana, um, you know, since the legislature originally rewrote the ballot initiative back in 2017. Um, So it's a big omnibus bill, and it sweeps together a bunch of different stuff that the industry and that advocates and um, that state regulators have been looking to change. Um, So, you know, among those uh, uh, items, there's a few things in there that would help uh, disenfranchised entrepreneurs get into the business more easily. Um, So we've talked about this a lot when I've been on the show. Um, Just this idea that, you know, basically people from these black and brown communities that were so heavily policed during marijuana prohibition, um, you know, our law calls for them to be really meaningfully included in the industry now that it's legal. Um, But we've mostly seen these larger investor-backed kind of companies snapping up most of the licenses. Um, and so this bill would ease a few of the biggest obstacles that have made things turn out that way. So one is that it would require cities and towns to just consider equity at the local level, which the state has to do by law, but um, you know municipalities had not been required to do that. So that's a big step forward for them. Um, it would also crack down on another thing that we've talked about a lot on the show, which is these very steep and uh, you know sort of dubiously justified uh, local fees on marijuana businesses that are supposed to offset their impact, but um, you know, according to critics of them, is you know little more than sort of a cash grab or a shakedown where they uh, just take this money and spend it on whatever they feel like. So that's that that's going to come to an end. Those fees are now going to be reviewed by the Cannabis Control Commission every year, um, and companies will now have the right to sue municipalities that sort of take too much money without justifying it properly. And then there's also going to be this loan fund for equity entrepreneurs. They haven't been able to go down to the bank and get a small business loan like another company might be able to because cannabis remains illegal at the federal level. So now a portion of our uh, state recreational taxes, when you go to the dispensary and, and you know buy an eighth of flour or something like that, um, that 10.75% excise tax, 15% of all that money is now going to go into this fund uh, for these equity entrepreneurs. And uh, that should really help them get off the ground in a business with 
very strict regulations um, where it costs a lot of money to start up a business. Let me just say it is really – before I go some specifics I want to get into with you, it's really good that uh, they finished this before they left for a five-month vacation because as the Speaker of the House, Ron Mariano, told your colleague Samantha Gross when uh, the issue of recalling legislators into session was raised, he said, as any good speaker would, people have vacation plans. I'm not going to start negotiating winners and losers of the economic development bill the first week of August because they got a vacation. They only have five months left till they have to come back to work. So can we get back to this local? We, uh, hey, we all need a break. Exactly. You know? and, and, as, and as someone with ADD, I can relate to like you know waiting until the last minute to do your homework. But on the other hand, my, my homework doesn't affect the fate of the entire population. Exactly. Well, you know, these local charges, I mean, Marjorie, every time we mention them, starts smiling because she's thinking of the now incarcerated mayor of Fall River. I'm not uh, smiling. Well, I don't yes, want to see anybody are. in jail. I'm oh, sure you do. Uh, and so, uh, but the, the thing is that there was a 3% threshold and not only were some people circumventing it, but they were almost automatically charging 3%, even though, and Dan Adams, correct me if I'm wrong, the the amount that the city or town was supposed to uh, uh, recoup was based upon actual expenses, which they never had to justify. So I'm assuming now, when you said the Cannabis Control Commission itself has to sign off on these things, that they would only sign off on X percent up to three, is if a local community could justify that that's what it cost them to entertain the facility. Is that a correct statement? Yeah. Basically, every marijuana company has to renew its license annually. So as they come back to the commission to do these renewals, they're going to have to submit their local contract. And that's the window in which the CCC then has 90 days to look at that contract and basically decide whether it's kosher or not. Now, there's definitely like a devil in the details thing going on here where, you know, that agency is going to really have to figure out, well, what is the threshold and what exactly is the standard and and what is reasonable and not reasonable. Um, And so that's an important conversation to keep an eye on going forward. But the bottom line for now is that if this bill were enacted, and I I should say it's been sent to Governor Baker, but we don't know what he's going to do with it yet. He may sign it. Uh, as is. He may send it back to the legislature with changes. He may let it become law without his signature. He might veto it entirely. Uh, Of course, as as you pointed out, um, and as my colleagues uh, Sam Gross and Emma Platoff recently pointed out in a piece, we're in uh, in this weird situation of the Democratic supermajority in the legislature sort of ceding its power to a lame duck Republican Mm -hmm. governor, right, by by taking this recess. So there's it's it will be interesting to see what happens if Baker tries to revise this bill or veto it. Um, and the legislature sort of isn't around to override that. You know, uh, I, I, so your cynicism is not merited. People have vacation plans, as Ron Mariano <laughs> said, Dan Adams. So get with the program. One thing you didn't mention in the reforms, <laughs> I wish you could explain to us, this Cannabis Cafe pilot program. What is it and who does it benefit? Yeah, that's an important and maybe a little overlooked piece of this. Um, you know, the voters, I think, when, when they looked at this issue back in 2016, the idea that we were pitched on, right, was let's regulate cannabis more or less like alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, one really big missing component of that uh, vision is that there's no on-site consumption uh, venue for cannabis like we would have a, a bar for alcohol. Um, and while that may just sort of seem like, oh, you know, uh, something that would be fun, it would be a nice to have you got to think about renters. you got to think about tourists, people who live in public housing. These are people who could um, 
you know, who don't, essentially don't have a legal place to use a legal substance, um, which is a little absurd. And it, it looks even more absurd, frankly, when you look next door at New York, where they allow cannabis consumption anywhere that cigarettes are allowed, um, including in oh, certain places in public. Wow. Yeah. So, so, you know, and we could argue about that. Obviously, you know, combustion is, is not a good thing. And secondhand smoke does have real effects on people. But uh, this, this would finally provide a lot of people in Massachusetts with a legal place uh, to consume a legal substance. And it's also important to note, though, that this is not going to mean... Uh, you know, the cannabis equivalent of a bar is going to pop up in every neighborhood across the state all of a sudden overnight. This is a pilot program. It's going to be in a handful of municipalities that volunteer, that sort of opt in um, to host these facilities. And there's going to be very intensive conversations at the local level about exactly how they're regulated in the context of that area, you know, including things like odor remediation and stuff like that. So, you know, na- neighbors aren't going to wake up one morning and find a, uh, a cannabis cafe has opened next door. Um, there will be plenty of debate about it. One last thing, though. Uh- just want to clarify these the, even though it's only a pilot at this stage it's obviously requires a lot less capital in setting up some huge recreational facility or growing facility and i assume it provides greater opportunity for locals for smaller entrepreneurs for people of color that with it that the, the statute wanted this legislation to encourage is that is that fair yeah the, so the Cannabis Control Commission sort of has regulations in waiting, if you will, for these facilities, waiting for the legislature to authorize them. And they have set aside these licenses for a period of a few years uh, for those equity and economic empowerment entrepreneurs. And I, I, you know, I think that'll be really interesting to see the sort of culture and vibe that, um, you know, those entrepreneurs bring into those spaces and into an industry that that some people feel is, you know, overly sterile, right? All these corporate cannabis stores that want their dispensaries to look like the Apple store. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, some businesses that take things so in, in, a funk, in a funkier uh, direction. But, you know, there are some concerns about the economic viability of, of these. They may be a little cheaper to start up, but then you start talking about ventilation equipment. That's very expensive. Mm. Um, and there's also this requirement that combustion can only happen outside, um, which might be more likely to spark conflict with uh, neighbors. So there's big. also a prohibition on preparing food at these places. So the folks who had sort of dreamed of having like a, a restaurant where the appetizer has some infused sauce on it or something like that. That's not going to be able to happen. So people are already griping about the limitations. Um, and we'll have to see the if the food? commission... What, I think there's the some concerns there? around, um, you know, the health code and the different codes that apply to kitchens and whether that could sort of be intermingled with the with the cannabis oh. regulations, I think, would okay. take some some work. I'm not saying it's an unsolvable problem, but it's um, it's an issue that I think the regulations sort of just tried to sidestep uh, for the time being. We're talking with Dan Adams. He is the marijuana reporter at the Boston Globe. So as you point out in your piece about New Hampshire, the live free or die state uh, was was uh, very nervous about marijuana legalization up there. They're unlike other New England states, but things have changed. Well, we'll see. I mean, it, and it is unusual, right? I appreciate you pointing out the irony that the uh, this yeah. sort of famous, famously libertarian state is now an island of marijuana prohibition in New England. Uh, now that Rhode Island has uh, has gone legal, uh, they're the last holdout, um, which is sort of the opposite of how you would expect. Um, but you know, they have a rather rather conservative Senate, state Senate, um, and they have a governor who has. Uh, you know, really seem to have changed his tune on this issue. A few years ago, was talking about it being a gateway drug, and, ba- and he even explicitly said, I don't care what the language looks like. If the legislature sends me something on cannabis, I'm going to veto it. Forget it. Um, but now he's saying, 
he's he's signaling you know that he's he's softened his stance a bit. Uh, this is Sununu, um, and so we'll see we'll see um, you know their their legislature, the House of Representatives up there, really big you know sort of citizen legislature. Um, they've put forward some legalization proposals, but they inevitably seem to die in the Senate. Um, and you know, so, but Sununu sending these more supportive signals might change the political political calculus up there. So I'll definitely be keeping an eye on that. Um, and, they, and I should say they have decriminalized and they do have a limited medical marijuana program, although it's one of these programs where you only qualify if you have a, you know, a, a condition on a specific list of uh, ailments that you have to have to qualify. It's not sort of like a, you know, and anything a doctor thinks it might help you with. Um, it's more specific than that. So we'll, we'll see what happens up there. So what's going on in Maine? Well, Maine, yeah, Maine is, a, is sort of the opposite end of the spectrum. They they sort of have a little bit of a wild west medical marijuana industry <laughs> up there. You could you could say, um, and and the state has attempted to rein it in a, a bunch of times and and failed and actually been sort of beaten back by this grassroots industry. It's really interesting. It's really unique in the country. So one that one thing to mention is you know Maine. People in Maine, the citizens of Maine, they have like a higher adoption rate of medical marijuana than just about any other state. Yeah, they're in like, no the, they're in like the top handful. There's like it's I think it's almost ten percent of all adults in the whole state of Maine have a medical marijuana card for one reason or another. And would you say and in Massachusetts one point four percent in Massachusetts? Yeah, it's much, yeah. It's, much it's like an order of magnitude lower here. Isn't that interesting? A lot so, of illness though, up there in Maine, I guess. Apparently. Well, but what's happened is though, uh, and this this is where the policy debate comes in. So they they allowed these people who were called caregivers, and that's essentially a designation that you know the original intention was if if my uncle has cancer or something like that, and he can't go to a dispensary, I'll grow some in my basement, and I'll sort of do this preparation for him, and I'll bring it over, and I'll help him out. Um, and it'll be cheaper and, uh, you know, sort of a compassionate access kind of a thing. But over a series of regulatory changes, these caregivers in Maine have been allowed to expand their businesses, serve larger and larger numbers of patients, and even open retail storefronts. But they're still not subject to the type of testing and other regulations that we're accustomed to in the Massachusetts regulated market. So there's no lab results on the side uh, or anything like that. Um, And so the state has looked at that and sort of said, this doesn't really make sense. We've got a recreational industry now, and we believe this testing is important for public health and safety. But all these caregivers have sort of said, look, you know, marijuana is over-regulated everywhere else. We have a successful grassroots industry that's comprised almost entirely of local people serving their local communities. Isn't this what we want? And, you know, they, they don't want to see these this high regulatory barrier make it so that you've basically got to be the Walmart of weed, you know, to operate in Maine. They, they want to keep these sort of more homegrown places. And, you know, I've been to some of these up there in Maine, and they're interesting. They're fun. They're, they're funky. But it is a little weird to, you know, get that uh, container of flour and not see any lab results on the side. And yeah. Not, not, not know that it wasn't sprayed with pesticides or whatever. I'm certain I'm not accusing caregivers in Maine of anything. I'm, I'm just sort of saying it's definitely a, a different flavor from what we might be used to in Massachusetts. So now that their agency up there, you know, the, the legislature has basically said you've got to stop the crackdown and you've got to work with these caregivers to write a new law that they're happy with. So it's a really interesting dynamic where this sort of grassroots network of caregivers up there has managed to uh, stave off these attempts to impose tighter regulations. And um, so now they're going back to the drawing board again to try to figure out what to do next. Did either of you mention in the last minute or two, because my headphones went out for about five seconds. Blueberries? Yes. Obviously, you didn't. This is unbelievable. As a result, writes Dan Adams, 
Businesses boomed in Maine, with marijuana surpassing potatoes and blueberries as Maine's most valuable crop. That is unbelievable. Yeah, it, it, re- it really is a huge industry up there. Um, and, you know, look, a rural state with, where people have a lot of land um, and real estate is cheaper and uh, it's easier to grow larger quantities of cannabis. And, uh, it's, and, and I think also I should say those numbers probably speak a little bit to the decline of other types of agriculture there as well, not just the increase in, in cannabis. But, it, yeah, you know, it, it is remarkable. It's a, it's a very weed-happy state up there. Uh, Dan, we're almost out of time, but I remember talking to you last time. This wasn't on your list today, but that there was some concern about the quality of the Massachusetts marijuana. Um, you were just mentioning how we're regulated. You have all the info and pesticides and stuff on the side of the product. But is there any more looking at that, or is it still? I mean, are we any better? I mean, or we just don't know. Yeah, that's that's a subjective matter, of course. Uh, you know, whether our our weed is good or not. I, I, a lot of the consumers and patients here are, are unhappy with it. They feel like these larger corporations aren't growing very good stuff, um, and they and some people feel like the strict rules here around testing are pushing operators to you know, dunk their flour and hydrogen peroxide uh, um, to get all oh. the microbes off it and, and things like that. You know, processes that are technically safe, but which maybe degrade the quality of the flour uh, in the eyes of a real, um, you know, uh, sort of artisanal consumer, someone who likes the sort of craft beer equivalent in cannabis is not going to be happy with those types of techniques. So, but I think that, you know, this bill we talked about, right, it's going to help more small businesses get into the industry and a greater diversity of people get into the industry. And I think a lot of those folks are more motivated by the quality of the flower. They're very passionate about the product more than their sort of um, scheming business people. So that's a big overgeneralization, but I think there is some hope that the quality of the products will uh, increase as more of these artisanally-minded operators get into the uh, business. And we should say what you said before is the governor hasn't yet decided. Is he sign it, which he – the suggestion is that he welcome this bill. He might send it back with amendments, at which point we'll talk to Dan about what the legislature – oh, no, we can't talk to him about what the <laughs> legislature does because House Speaker Ron Mariano told Samantha Gross at The Globe – I don't know if I mentioned this – quote, people – have vacation plans. So obviously they can't bother it's, themselves. It's past the window to get a refund on the plane ticket. You know? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Hey, Dan, it's great to talk to you as always. Wonderful work. Thank My you very pleasure. much, Thanks, Dan. Yeah, always fun. I think someone should, we should get one of those reporters from somewhere to follow Mariano around, see where he's going on his vacation. Well, who cares where he's going? He's off for five months. Well, I'd like to know. I know they're working the, hard, they say. I'd like to know what months. his particular vacation plans are, yeah. wouldn't you? Yeah, well, people have vacation Maybe plans. Maybe he's going whatever. on a cruise. Maybe he is. Dan Adams is the Boston Globe cannabis reporter yep. and author of This Week in Weed, which is one of the, my favorite names, newsletters of all time. It's good news this Week too. in Weed, great, the definitive marijuana newsletter. Dan Adams, thank you so much. Coming up, we talked about blueberries a couple of weeks ago. You like blueberries? Well, let me tell you something. You better act fast because your favorite summer foods might soon be wiped out because of climate change, including fresh Maine blueberries. But it's not just that. It's corn on the cob, it's lobster, and it's certain a certain kind of ice cream. We'll hear about you from about summer foods you cannot live without and what you might do. I mean, really, can you live without corn on the cob? That's next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Marjorie and Jim Browning. Now, on top of doom scrolling, you can add doom eating to your afternoon plans. The Globe reporter, Brittany Bowker, writes, and, I'm sorry, and Darna Noor, right? Uh, they highlight four quintessential New England summer foods that, thanks to climate change, might go the way of the Choco Taco. Lobsters, blueberries, coffee, ice cream, and even Corn, But I guess you could say, unlike the Choco Taco, where enough Twitter activity can change even the minds of top Klondike executives, these foods can't just be brought back. So we're opening the phone lines and text lines. What are you going to do when your favorite New England summer foods are gone? And is there anything you're going to try to do to keep them around? Give us a call or a text at 877-301-8970 or tweet us at BOS Public Radio. When we were talking this morning, you said almost... With tears in your eyes, what are we going to do without corn? And it's, by the way. Well, don't you know people, I mean, I just had my cousins visit me this weekend. And one of my cousins talked about how they, they go to this corn, specific corn stand. And it's, you know, it's, it's all on the honor system. Uh, they You pick the corn. They you leave the money there. Everybody has like their favorite corn stand when the corn becomes so delicious and buttery and wonderful in August. And it's kind of a big thing about growing up around here. Plus, you drive around to different places like Westport or you see all these massive cornfields. And it's just something that's such a part of New England to think that corn is in peril because it's too hot. And if you have any flowers and or, or bushes and stuff, you've seen some of them shriveling this year, no matter how much you water them, mm-hmm. because the sun is just too hot and the leaves are shriveling. So this is what's going to happen to corn. The same thing is going to happen to blueberries. It's just getting too hot. Um, to and lobster. Them. We've talked about the Gulf of Maine. Oh, being, yeah. All uh, over. Grow, uh, heating up faster than 99% mm-hmm. of the world's oceans are waters or whatever so the lobsters they swim what do they do move where they walk well they well <laughs> what do they do whatever lobsters do i don't know it's what they're walking question. north to canada and yeah. that sort of whatever they're on the bottom and i've never <laughs> seen one question. actually swim well, they do have six little legs right they got the big claws okay. in the front they will motor their way uh north to <laughs> canada and we're not gonna have those <laughs> Either. And by the way, you know, that's, I mean, I'm not in the corn as much as Marjorie is I think is we need to know, do they walk or swim? That is a great question, Jim. I have never thought of that. Yeah, we'll do a show on it next week. <laughs> they walk into the traps. We know that. Yeah, Maybe they, they swim into okay, the traps. Okay, fine. That's great. Now, they're back into the traps. <laughs> blueberries also matter a lot of people. A tragedy. I love blueberry pie. And so by the way, why? the reason coffee ice cream is at risk is because coffee is at risk. Not New England, by the way. I don't know if it should have been included in this story. Well, because apparently, a, according to uh, this survey, yeah. uh, the grocery delivery company Instacart, yeah. they found out that the f- most ordered ice cream flavor in Massachusetts, right. Maine, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island is coffee. Yeah, but we don't grow coffee beans here. No, we don't grow These coffee are beans things. here, We're but that sc- means you won't be able to get your coffee, ice, uh, cream, or, ice cream or coffee milk without exactly. paying a lot more money. Exactly. But the point is, corn, uh, lobster, blueberries grown here. Or, well, I don't know if a lobster is grown, whatever no, the verb is for that we either. We don't even know if it walks we or don't swims. Know. By the way, someone just sent a photograph, Jamie, of a lobster swimming. Swimming. Thank I, you, Jamie. I, I, I don't know. It well, looks like it's falling fl- to me. It looks like it looks it's like flying, it's, actually, to me. In it looks any case, like it's heading straight down to the bottom. So we, uh, we don't want to discuss that. What we want to know is <laughs> yes, we uh, do. Are you, uh, how are you feeling about the fact that uh, climate change, which we discuss almost every day here, may take away some critical summer staples, blueberry pie, 
corn on the cob. And and most important to me, I'm a huge lobster fan, uh, which is now ridiculously expensive. Yeah, I don't like but, lobster. I, well, I, I do, Marjorie. And I like the claws. Well, they walk. Well, obviously, then you do like lobster. Yeah, like the rest the claws. of it's That's just it. too much. Okay, well, then you like part of the lobster. I like part of the lobster. Okay, right. fine. Uh, it's upsetting to me. Is it upsetting to you? 877-301-8970 is our number. And the point I made, which was quite... Uh, insightful by me, if I say, you know, if people are analogizing this to Chaco Taco, where they made a complete reversal, that's a company that can make a reversal. You can't make a climate change reversal. If it's too hot for corn, it's too hot for corn. If the waters are heating up too quickly for lobster and they're moving or walking or flying to Canada, then that's a real, I mean, by the way, this is a, you know, this is the kind of thing we talk about direct impact on people and one of the reasons people have gotten serious about climate change is no longer this, quote, theoretical thing, but rather uh, the fires, the droughts, the whatever that everybody's experiencing. This is the kind of thing that it's could here. get people realize it is right here on yeah, your, on your here. dining room table. You, you know, know I, I've talked a million times about how upset I am about cyanobacteria. That's what's poisoning a lot of lakes on the Cape and these kettle ponds uh, where people have bought homes on kettle ponds. Now they can't swim in them. Yeah. It was so hot this summer. You know how if you're on a lake, you see the, the in, in the um, spring and early summer, you see all these circles of sand. Yeah. And the circles of sand are where the, the mother fish have laid their eggs and they have a circle of sand around it and they patrol. The, I didn't the, know that. Yeah, they patrol above the eggs. Mm-hmm. And um, this summer, it was so hot that you would see this, the, the, the fish acting oddly. They weren't just sitting there mm-hmm. uh, kind of still above the eggs. They were yeah. frantically swimming around. And I couldn't help but think it's because it's too hot because they do it in the shallow water and it's just too hot for them. Mm. Um, and what about the fish and what about the eggs? I mean, the whole thing is just is just really scary. But corn particularly bothers me because you, I just, you, you go to the farm stand mm-hmm. and there it is, right? And you shuck your own corn. Some people don't like it if you shuck the corn Um, but you kind of have to check if they've got you know little worms in them or if the corn kernels look really good you shuck the corn you pick out your uh your your corn you go home and it's so easy i mean you can be the worst cook in the world Mm. man and you can cook corn how do you cook corn well, I mean, people debate it and argue. I'm I mean, asking I just, you, how do you cook Well, how corn? do I do it? I yeah. throw it in the boiling water. Sometimes I add milk and mm-hmm. I cook it for eight minutes, maybe 10 minutes. Oh, That's it. Idea. What do you do, Jim? I'm not going to tell you. So, oh, in you any can case, grill corn what, as well. Lots I grill corn. Grill. You, yep. you do, by the way, if you're going to grill corn, you leave, what's that thing on the outside called? The husks or something? The husk. But you take all that stringy and stuff off. the corn off. silk. That's the corn you silk. You take the silk off before you do we that. We used to smoke that as kids. Smoke corn silk. It was horrible. In any case, most of the people are saying that lobsters neither walk nor swim. They skip. And so that's what most of the texters – I mean, I've never been at the bottom of the ocean, so I really wouldn't they know. Skip. That's what people are saying, and I assume it's true. Why would they text it if it weren't, uh, if it weren't true? Let's okay. go to Daniel. You're somewhere in Massachusetts, and we're talking about climate change destroying some of our favorite foods. I know it's small potatoes, so to speak, or small corn. Hi, Daniel. What's up? Hey, Jim and Marjorie. Uh, long time, first time. Thank you. And uh, and uh, I'm a, I'm a farmer lobsterman. I've oh. lobstering for more than more than twenty years out of Rockport. Whoa! Oh, then you know the answer. Well, uh, theoretically, I, I may know the answer. Okay. Um, walk, all, swim, uh, skip. Uh, they they walk or they crawl. Crawl. Okay. okay. Because one, one, it's like a, like an insect without wings. Oh. In fact, the the, the informal 
colloquialism for lobsters are uh, amongst the lobstermen is bugs. How's the how's the bugging today? Yeah. Oh, really? They when when you see them, you think they're swimming. Uh, you see them. Uh, it's usually a sweep of their tail to get them away from some kind of danger oh. or threat. Or if if you catch one and it's too small, they will flap their tail to get back to the bottom. But they are crawlers. So what do you think about the lobster catch? I mean, it's in trouble. It's in trouble uh, because they, now they don't even lobster down off New York anymore because the water's too warm. Yeah. And as the as the Gulf Stream warms up, I I, I fear that one day, uh, you know, the Massachusetts lobstermen will, will be uh, in the same boat. Right now, they're so to speak. The, the, the state fishermen can't fish between January and uh, and May anymore. Um, they close the fishery if you're fishing in state waters. Oh. But as the water warms, they, the lobsters will tend to move north and. Uh, so they'll have a few boom years in Canada and Nova Scotia and Newfoundland until that water warms up, and then Lord knows what will happen. Let's hey, go to the Arctic. We're, we're really <laughs> glad you called, left. and uh, I hope the industry does survive. Uh, but thank you for the call. Someone uh, texted and said, this is true because I read about this too, while the lobsters keep migrating north, so too do the blue crabs from the Chesapeake. So I look forward to delicious Maryland-style crab cakes on the Cape in the future. I guess that's sort of a cup half empty kind of half full kind of uh, philosophy this is actually a depressing topic you know Stephen and rentham says a saying? new england summer without corn on the cob is as jim would say unconscionable it is unconscionable yeah so here is deb in harvard mass my neighbor and i are growing our own corn blueberries and other summer vegetables obviously in smaller quantities than farmers but enough to keep some of our favorite summer foods Loss of lobster will be very sad. Well, that's the thing. You can grow your own deal kind of thing. Well, you, you know, know, so many of my neighbors, too, they just were like little independent people. There's family members, and they mm. would get a license for like six lobster traps, and they go out, and they pick up the lobsters, and they bring home their own lobsters, and they boil them right up and eat them. It was kind of a yeah. fun thing to go out and pick up the lobster traps, even yeah. though the poor lobsters, they were headed for a very unhappy fate. Um, but 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 that's kind of sad too, and not to mention the clams. People used to go clamming all the time down mm. the Cape. I mean that's changing too. Uh, one of our emailers calls lobsters ocean cockroaches. Well, it's a lot not people, very a lot appetizing. Have... Oh, listen to this. Yeah. They don't walk. They don't swim. They don't skip. They prance. Well, I, I would say the lobster fisherman, the former lobster fisherman, knows what he's talking about. He says they essentially crawl. Is what they, they crawl. They uh, like you know the, what I, I learned like a few prance. years ago. I don't even know if this is true. I looked it up and now I forget. And then we'll get back to your calls. Is a a woman you know whose name I won't mention because mm-hmm. I don't want to embarrass her. If she was joking. Used to work at the Globe. Told me that uh, she doesn't eat lobster. You know why she doesn't eat lobster? Why they're monogamous. Now, I don't they know if that's are? true. Could someone look that up to see if lobsters are monogamous? And if they are, don't tell me because I really don't I think I want to know. But wouldn't that be horrible? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I thought they were philanderers. But well, I if, by the way, if they're wrong. monogamous, then you just eat both of them. I mean, that's another <laughs> – I mean, just <laughs> – so it's not right. so there's no that's suffering right. in the family. So why is it left alone? That's that was right. my point, obviously. Oh. <laughs> Let's go to Pete and Holden. What's your deal? Hey guys, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, sure. A couple things. Hold on, let me get you off speaker. I apologize. That's, that's okay. okay. I'm not going anywhere. Go ahead. Go ahead. You know, the, the corn's already started to change. And, you know, I've got friends of mine that have been growing corn for 150, 200 years. And, you know, the, the heat is so bad early uh, now that they grow 
a different variety of corn in the beginning of the season that is genetically the same as their other corn. They literally mm-hmm. go to Stockbridge and, uh, at UMass to get their corn genetically changed because it's too hot for early corn. You know, the old expression, knee-high by 4th of July, yeah. is long, long gone. And, and it's changed. So you're getting already genetically changed corn at most of our places. These are family-owned businesses, and it's, it's already happening. And i got to tell you, corn on the cob in New England, if that goes away, we got a real problem. Because, I don't know, the Red Sox, corn on the cob, it's all about <laughs> even. And, and, and one more thing, Marjorie. Yeah. Yes. You absolutely cannot ever, ever, ever open a corn. Now, you don't, you don't chuck when any farm you, can't. you go to ever. Just, no, a, just the top? He's going to explain it. Go ahead. Nope, okay. Not even that. Not even that. So what yeah. you do, Marjorie, is make sure that they're, they're closed and tight. They're open. If anything at the top is open, mm-hmm. that's already a day or two days old. Oh. Too dry. So what you want to do is make sure it's closed. And then at the bottom of the corn, if there's a bug, they drill the hole through it so you can see it. So farmers hate when people open their corn. Hate it, hate it, hate it because oh. it dries it out. And, huh. and you might not like it because it's too small for you, not because there's a bug in it and you put it back. So what you do is pick them up. Are they tight? Yes, they're tight. Is there a hole on the bottom of it? No, there's not. Put in your bad bag, Mar- Marjorie. You'll be fine when you get home. I Pete, thank you very well, you much. Sound, hey, Pete, you're pretty knowledgeable. So, so, advice. So do the lobsters swim or what do they do? Do you have any idea? Well, it's funny. It's funny because I lobster too, and they of absolutely they crawl. They crawl. I've got ten traps. I got ten traps. We've, we've been doing it for I years. I was kidding. The guy's got ten crabs, uh, traps. How much? Fifty bucks. That's all. The, the, the state charges you fifty dollars for ten traps. It's called a recreational license. You get. You can have up to ten traps. Yeah. They absolutely crawl, and they only use that tail as a defense to get away. That's it. And oh. we call them bugs too. Because they they crawl around like bugs. Actually, when you're under the water, they're actually kind of scary looking because they look like giant bugs. Yeah. But, but that's the truth. They crawl. I was really glad that lobsterman called in because I was screaming at my radio going, they don't swim. Yeah. Well, I, I, it was Marjorie <laughs> made me say that. I didn't believe that. But Marjorie said I had to say it. Pete, that was an excellent, informative call. <laughs> that was an excellent call. call. Okay. Thank you. That was I'm great. I'm going to know what to do this weekend at the corn stand then. I won't, I won't be... I won't be trying to sneak any uh, but it's halfway. Sort of, the corn thing is sad. I mean, all these, this it's is really sad. sad. I mean, it really is. <laughs> well, it's your idea, Jim. No, I don't mean the we're top. We're supposed to have fun, and, and we now were, we're all uh, depressing everybody. I thought you, we were going to talk about the hot bar. I didn't know we were going to be talking <laughs> about the disappearance of corn and lobster and whatever. But despite what everybody says, I like the idea of lobsters prancing. Isn't yeah, that kind of a I nice like it image? Too, yeah. Okay, we are done for today. Thank yeah. you very much for tuning in today. We really appreciate it. I hope you can join us again tomorrow. We're going to have former Suffolk County Sheriff Andrew Cabral, former Massachusetts Secretary of Education Paul Revel, MIT's John Gruber on the CHIPS Act. He's going to explain all about the economic impact of that and test. He's one of the reasons that happened, by the way. That's right. But go hey, ahead. We don't fool around. We get the we get the big guys on our show. Jim John Gruber's one of them. Uh, Tess and John Garrison from the documentary Magnificent Beast, which is all about humans' relationships with pigs, is now airing on PBS. We want to thank our crew, Zoe Matthews, Aidan Conley, Mackenzie Farkas, Rebecca Tauber. Our engineer is John the Claw Parker. Our executive producer is Jenny Bologna. Are you working tonight, Jim? Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I have the last of our primary only televised debates, Secretary of State Bill Galvin, who's obviously seeking an eighth term, and Tanisha Sullivan who is the head of the Boston NAACP. By the way, Trevor Corson, our colleague said, who wrote The Secret Life of Lobsters, said lobsters do uh, couple, but the couplings only last for two weeks. But is that because someone eats them after two weeks or they only spend 
two weeks with each other. Can you look it up and call me later tonight and let me know? Yeah, that's because after okay, two fine. weeks, lots of people want to move on, Jim. Exactly. Why should lobsters be any different? Exactly. It's like a two-week two stand is exactly. what they call it in the lobster. lobster. Okay, exactly. i got to get out of here. I'm, I've had enough of this. Uh, we'll see you tomorrow. I hope you'll join us. Bye. I'm Jim Browdy. I'm Marjorie Egan. Thanks again. And like Jim said, I hope you can join us again tomorrow. Meanwhile, have a great day.